Blog Talk Radio. Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady.
grandfather and your white great-grandfather sold my great-grandfather and your white grandfather raped my grandmother and your father stole, cheated, lied and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them. And we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We are at war! That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood rushes through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave.
does not appear to be an overriding factor for the African community. Federal Reserve Consumer Finance revealed, quote, African people with bachelor degrees has medium or average net, net worth that's two-thirds of medium net worth of whites without a uh, bachelor's degree, end quote. The island is more apparent considering as a demographic, African women are the most educated segment of the U.S. society with a medium net worth of just $11,000. I should say the medium and when it comes to the average allows for averages despite the high wages of some African women. It should not obscure the, the discriminatory feature of capitalism. Now, economic problems affiliated with the wealth gap have long been acknowledged but persist regardless. Wealth, wealth gap's negative impact on demand or individuals' ability to purchase goods and services and as well the facilitator of government debt and inflation contributes to economic instability that directly contributes to the GDP declines to the detriment of the entire economy. This begs the question, Brother Africa, if the wealth gap has a, such a deleterious impact on the economy, why is it treated as a non-problem? In a word, capitalism. Deep within the excesses of capitalism, which is the battle between political control versus economic growth. For the ruling class, economic business for the capitalists is baked into the system. Economic growth for the ruling class is an added bonus because it pads their bottom line, but concerns of the wealth gap does not resonate that intensely with capitalists. It does not resonate specifically for two reasons. One, whether the economy performs or not, the ruling class benefits. Keep in mind, Every four to seven years, capitalism enters into a recession. Recession or economic downturn over a six-month time frame negatively impacts the GDP, which imposes hardship on the masses of people. But that hardship is mitigated when it comes to the ruling class and in the process to simplify political control of the elites. Investment opportunities initially reduced by recession are resurrected by an infusion of credit from the Federal Reserve or the Treasury Department for the express purpose are creating investment opportunities only for the capitalist class. Secondly, holding down wages is key to profitability. And in addition to holding down wages, preventing access to assets, particularly home ownership, is a necessary strategy in promoting an us versus them dichotomy which serves capitalism's political interest. Paying Africans less regardless of pedigree and denying Africans access to acquiring assets to build wealth legitimizes racist tropes defining Africans as unworthy. The psychological dimensions of maintaining the wealth gap for the ruling class is indispensable, and we have to be very, very clear on that point. Now, historically, the veracity of the statement is best illustrated at a time when the wealth gap exploded during the Gilded Age. In response, FDR Federal General Roosevelt devised an initiative to revitalize the thinking U.S. economy, which was opposed by Southern Democrats. The initiative the New Deal sought the creation of, of Social Security, Home Owners Loan Corporation, and the Federal Housing Administration. All these programs, with the potential to acquire and sell assets, increase the attainment of wealth, were denied African people. Political importance of reinforcing the lowly economic status and otherwise of Africans would take precedent over economic growth. Had they included Africans in, in Appalachian poor whites in this program, the stimulus effect of increasing the money supply through consumerism, could have contributed more to an economy that saw economic improvement since implementation of the New Deal. Now, clearly, resistance by capitalism to address the wealth gap should not be underestimated. 19% or 3.5 million African households have negative net worth. Another 4.3 million African households have medium net worth of just $10,000, this according to McKinley and Company research. 
This racial wealth gap contributes to $16 trillion in lost economic activity and to resolution at least one to overcome the legacy lies in tax policy, which redistributes wealth, which could be used to reverse the transfer of wealth from the working poor to the wealthy. Examples abound where the tax policy invigorated the economy while increasing the level of prosperity among everyone in that society. Tax policy changes during the 1930s served as a catalyst for the greatest economic expansion in contemporary American history ending in the late 70s with the end of the gold standard and the capitalist class revolt corrupting the political system. Tax policies in the 1930s saw tax rates enacted on wealth as high as 63% to an even higher 79%. Tax rates at these levels today could easily address the wealth gap and eliminate poverty in the U.S. The only feasible question given the entrenched power of wealth is it possible. Probably not. The last time the top 1% was appropriately taxed was in 1963 when President John Kennedy attempted to institute real democracy by dispersing wealth and advocating a 91% tax rate to ensure government had enough revenues to carry out its function. Kennedy subsequently was assassinated by the state, and since then, tax rates for the wealthy have fallen precipitously. Tax rates applied to 1% of wage earners have consistently hovered around 23 to 25%, with a spike in 2012 of 35%. All indications are the tax rate among 1% of wage earners will continue to fall. In 2020, courtesy of Trump tax cuts for the wealthy, paid a tax rate of just 13.6%. Recently, President Biden has speculated a 25% tax rate on billionaires is, is appropriate, but the tax rate he advocated is an effective tax rate that excludes taxes on stocks, bonds, and investments. The resolution to the wealth gap and inquiring revenues and inquiring revenues to reduce the gap is even more complicated by the, by the expansion of capitalism that has evolved a new class of super wealthy that shares that shames the top one percent of the population. Forget about the top one point one percent. I'm talking about the top point zero one percent of wage earners or about thirty two thousand five hundred American families in the US. This group has access to so much wealth that wealth has to be extrapolated using information from IRS tax returns, IRS reports, security exchange reports, etc. The fact Republicans have been defunding IRS is inconceivable, indeed impossible. IRS has the time or manpower to follow the economic transactions of a group with, with extensive wealth that operate domestically and internationally. Now, whether you think a socialist remedy is justified or not, inequality in the guise of medium wealth gap does adversely impact the lives of everyone. If the self-interest quality of capitalism persists, the wealth gap visible today will consume more and more people tomorrow, while smaller and smaller numbers of people obtain increasing amounts of wealth. Resistance for the masses of people is mandatory. Indifference is not an option, so we have to get busy in terms of fighting this, this war. We must pick a side in terms of this war, in terms of the rich against, against everyone else. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we bring in Brother Anthony, and we'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move. Welcome to Africa on the Move, Brother Anthony. Uh, thanks for having me, Brother Africa. Revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, Objectivist Pan-Africanism the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony, we will, we will now go to Brother Moses, and we'd like to welcome Brother Moses to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Brother Moses. Uh, 
Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there is one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. We don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And the struggle continues to be to unite the many to defeat the few, the interests of the 1% as opposed to the interests of the vast majority of masses of people and we have an antagonistic contradiction between private property and and the people's needs. So the struggle continues. Thank you for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. And now we will go to Sister Eleanor, and we will welcome her to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Are you there, Sister Eleanor? Okay, while we wait for Sister Eleanor, what we're going to do at this point in time is to take a rubbish to culture break. Good evening, Brother back, Africa. Good evening, good evening Eleanor. to our listening audience. Good evening, everyone. Introduce yourself. Yes, my name is Eleanor Johnson, and um, I am an artist and an environmentalist, human rights advocate, and I really appreciate being part of this forum. Um, A lot of things happened this weekend, and thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's show. Always honored to have you, Sister Eleanor. At this point in time, we're going to take a rubbish or a culture break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to discuss what's going on in your world community. If you would like to share in this discussion on what's going on in your world community, feel free to call it at 323-679-0841. Please hit 1, and then we'll bring you in. We will recognize your last phone number. So at this point in time, let's go to our break, and we'll come back. We'll discuss, and we have invited you as well to what's going on in your world and the community. This is Africa on the move.
transition to what's going on in your world and the community. And right now, I know there's so much going on. But panelists and analysts, before we get started, I'd like each one of y'all give me just a general response to your recognition and appreciation for women. You know, women have done and continue to do so much. They hold up half of the sky, as they say. And for some reason or another, as important as women are in our society, they're only going to dedicate one month to acknowledge their greatness, and they claim March is Month of Women. So, Brother Hackey, sound first. I'd like for you to just speak to the importance of women and appreciation of women before we go into what's going on in your world and the community. Brother Hackey, your appreciation of women is what? Yes, well, you know, um, women essentially makes the world go round. Uh, the bottom line is without women, you know, there is no life. And so women are the, the, the epitome in terms of what we call, you know, life. Uh, and given that reality, when you think about in terms of the kind of attributes women bring to the world, in terms of kindness, generosity, sharing, caring, those kind of things are so instrumental in terms of building the ideal, uh, uh, ideal world. Women are endowed with those abilities. And it seems to me that, you know, given the fact that they're endowed with these abilities, the fact that they're oppressed, prevent them from presenting those gifts to the world, I think, is a real tragedy. But certainly women uh, uh, contribute immensely in, term, in terms of the world. And I dare say that, you know, one of the things, and I often get in trouble with this, but I got to say um, one of the things is that when we talk about creation, you know, my position is that if you're going to talk about creation, then you can't talk about creation without the women being at the center of creation. So it seems to me if, if you talk about the ability to create, then it has to be women. And uh, so, therefore, you know, the women bring a lot of uh, the, the, the uh, uh, necessary qualities in terms of making life worth living. So without women, I would hate to live in this world, and I'm close with that. I hear you, Brother Haki. I hear you. Brother Anthony, talk to me. Your appreciation as it relates to women for women. What you have to say about women, Brother Anthony? Yes. Uh, women... Um 
you know, um, uh, uh, make up half the uh, half of humanity, and they have been in the forefront in the battle against all forms of oppression. Uh, you know, uh, being uh, uh, being uh, whether it's us, uh, chattel slavery, racism. Uh, you know, all forms of, uh, you know, uh, equality, they have been in the forefront in the battle against that. And, uh, and, uh, they have, uh, and went, uh, and went, and in spite of their oppression, they have exercised a tremendous amount of leadership. And that's especially shown throughout, uh, uh, you know, African history. Women have played a role in, uh, in 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 advancing humanity. So uh, you know that's how uh, you know I would uh, you know uh, you know reckon uh, you know recognize the contribution of women uh, to society today. Thank you, brother Evan, brother Moses. Your thoughts and your appreciation for women. Thank you, thank you, brother Africa. I think you know we can uh, we can go on forever about <coughs> excuse me the contributions of women to society. Uh, women are the mother of the of the humanity, um, the nurturers, the caregivers, you know, the lovers, and uh, just um, well, Adam was a rough draft. Adam was a rough draft, and um, certainly, you know, women, women uh, are what what society needs in terms of uh, consciousness. Uh, seeing the most oppressed are the most revolutionary, so we 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 should heed and listen to women, uh, uh, because, like I said, the most oppressed are the most revolutionary. And so that's just a material fact. And so we need leadership from women. We need to promote and encourage and nurture and uh, and uh, uh, protect women. And uh, and um, I don't know we could go on and on. Women, women hold up half the sky. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, as a woman, what would you like to say about women in terms of being very appreciative of the role and the nature of of women and their influence on the world? Well, last week, as we know, was the 100th anniversary of the Equal Rights Bill. It's yet to become an amendment in the United States. So women here in the United States are struggling for uh, the ERA to this day. But what's important about women is, one, not only are we the mothers of Earth, of, of planet Earth, we're the developers of agriculture as we know it today and so many things. And I think uh, the my fellow panelists said it all. Uh, we are the nurturers, the caregivers. We give birth to all life, and uh, we are a manifestation of love and the intellect sharing and development. When you see any revolutionary movement, 
such as uh, Cuba in, in 1959. You see that there was a, a woman considered the mother of the revolution. The woman is considered the mother of the revolution, fought with her husband and 13 children. So then we're not only caregivers, we believe in political struggle and the advancement of humankind. And when you look at the environmental movement and indigenous people, they recognize women as leaders. When the Europeans arrived here in the West, they were greeted by the leaders of the indigenous people, and they were very often women. And uh, we're enduring. We, we, we do so many things, and all we have to do is look right here at the nearby Maryland, the state of Maryland, and look at women like Harriet Tubman, uh, a woman who was a slave, whose husband was a free man who chose to marry her based on knowing that their children would automatically be slaves based on her wit, her intellect, and her uh, great charm. So women, uh, as Robert often says, hold up half the world. I think oftentimes they hold up more than half the world. They hold up more than their share. And uh, they are at the forefront of the environmental movement to save Mother Earth right now. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. This is Africa on the Move. We'll now make our transition to what's going on in your world community. And if you are listening to the program and you'd like to make a comment or have a question, we please, we, we, we ask you, please, make sure that you hit one and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. Make sure that you hit one, and we will announce your last phone number. So let's make this transition to our segment, What's Going On in Your World and the Community. We go back to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, the question is, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, Brother Africa, I have to talk a little bit about uh, corporate power and the ability to avoid taxation. I think that's very, very key. You know, in the 21st century, in terms of you know trying to get corporations to pay their fair share in terms of taxes, uh, one of the things we are very very clear on, you know, when we talk about in terms of governmental functions, without the revenues, we all understand that governmental functions are simply not possible, and the results are, you know, poverty, despair, uh, all those things that tend to mitigate against a peaceful and loving and wholesome society. But anyway, Brother Africa, check this out. Now, approximately one and a half years ago, G7 nations, the U.K., U.K., I mean U.S., U.K., Canada, Japan, Germany, France, and Italy discussed a proposal to implement a minimum global tax on corporations. The plan is to extract corporate taxes that otherwise would not be available because of varying tax laws for corporations between different states. Now, the propensity among corporations to pay low tax rates in the global south has contributed to extreme poverty in the global south, but it also has exacerbated growing inequality in the West, compelling Western leaders to access the economic damage resulting from corporate loopholes that deny states needed revenues. Now, according to the Guardian newspaper, this proposed, proposal entails two negotiating points like to curtail or prevent any consensus on taxes corporations throughout the world. First, it consists of taxing corporate parent companies or the headquarters, regardless of location, even in the global south. Under this proposal, corporate revenues will be taxed 20%, provided corporate profits exceed 10%. Already, existence to a 20% tax rate has surfaced, 
with some officials insisting 12% tax rate is negotiable, provided certain tax exemptions remain in place. Even though the 50 to $80 billion in expected revenues constitute a small part of corporate earnings for G7 states, the idea of employing socialist principles for the betterment of humanity seems to be a difficult pill to swallow. Secondly, proposals entail a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. This proposal minus tax exemptions, and this is important to get this point, minus tax exemptions, will bring in revenues of over $129 billion, a boost to states these economies, again, are overshadowed by metrics that do not value human life. Instead, corporate pursuit of the bottom line takes precedent. Spearheaded by the U.S., concerns of which corporations will be exempted from a minimum corporate tax tactically eviscerates the spirit of the proposal, thereby opening the door and showing corporations like digital services, tax, and big te- technology are empowered to enjoy the advantages of tax exemptions, while the resulting inequality conveniently blamed on local governments or continue to proliferate. Now, if history is any, any, any indication, the elevation of corporate power has increased exponentially, starting with the dismounting of the gold standard in 1971 and the implementation of fiat currency. Corporations have been inundated with credit, making it possible to solidify control both economically and politically. Politically speaking, in the U.S., the U.S. Constitution unambiguously proclaimed corporations autonomous. They are free to elevate profits over the good of society. Picking up on this theme, a very conservative Supreme Court concurred, quote, the Equal Protection Clause concedes corporations are people imbued with all the rights and privileges of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, end quote. Citizens' rights rulings establishing personhood of corporations essentially close the door to corporate responsibility, and any perceived social contract with corporations was relegated to the footnotes of history. Social contract, in theory, sounds pragmatic, but U.S. history belies a very different reality that ended the social contract with corporations back in the 1970s, which has intensified over the last 70 years. One such example highlighting the extent of corporate power to avoid fair taxation and the benefits of paying a fair share of taxes occurred in 2018. Now, in 2018, Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act with the express purpose of limiting tax loopholes for corporations, using the revenues from corporate taxes to spur employment, invest in social safety net, as well as contribute to reducing government deficits. Intent, intent of the policy was admirable, but the policy written by lawmakers was designed to fail. One year after the policy, 379 Fortune 500 companies paid less in taxes, not more. According to the Institute of Taxation and Economics, the policy considered the fact that TCJA Act was written to target the effective tax rate, which ensured tax base and loopholes enjoyed by big corporations would not be affected. The result was corporations ended up paying an even lower tax rate, around about 11%. For comparison, just to give you an idea of just how, uh, how, how, how devious they were, even Trump refused to endorse a lower corporate tax rate than 13% with an effective tax rate. Had the TCJA Act incorporated a marginal tax rate, most available corporate income could have been taxed, excluding unrealized investments, investments which are not, which are ca- not cashed in, which cannot be taxed, most of the prevailing loopholes for corporate taxes like stock options, tax credits, shifting profits to another country or to the parent company, or capitalist gains could have been taxed. Now, in an era of declining capitalism, obligatory tax breaks and subsidies for corporations is exacerbating economic decline faster than ever. On average, U.S. corporations are paying $2 trillion in taxes yearly. 
This is statistics further complicated by the fact that U.S. government subsidized corporations that are effectively non-functioning, or what we call the zombie corporations, to the tune of $3 trillion a year. Monies that could be used to better employment outcomes or infrastructure repair are instead squandered by state actors who are beholden to, to class warriors without regard to the economic devastation imposed on so many. Forget about the economy. Class warriors should not be taken as pejorative term, but descriptive in every sense of the word. President Biden, a strong advocate of the system, has been pushing for a 15% minimum tax rate bill for U.S. corporations under the Inflation Reduction Act. Again, the tax scheme he advocates is an effective tax policy, which allows corporation deductions that will likely reduce tax receipts. His allegiance to class warriors is no mere coincidence, but is consistent with his political position. Initially co- contemplating a 5-8% tax raise on, on billionaires, it was later amended to 25%. Notions of contemplating a 5-8% tax rate on billionaires in and of itself reflect a kind of insensitivity, specifically in lieu of an economic system like capitalism that advocates that advantages wealth at the expense of all others. This insensitivity conveyed by Biden appears to be the general consensus conveyed by wealth, corporations included. Despite $36 trillion in offshore accounts, according to the Paradise Paper, tax avoidance schemes continue to increase. And, and just by the way, for your information, the U.S. national debt currently stands at $33 trillion. The amount of money in offshore accounts stands at $36 trillion. If such tax schemes are common knowledge among leaders but persist anyway, those that not suggest one accord or at the very least support for tax avoidance. If so, would not class warriors be a proper analogy? Given the war uh, waged by the wealth against everyone else, isn't it time that mass of the people decide to pick a side? And I think when you think about it, uh, and there's, there's no there's no alternative in terms of understanding, you know, that uh, this war that they wage is, is not only devastating, uh, but it, but it's extremely uh, demoralizing. So for that reason alone, it seems to me that people have to pick a side in terms of this war. And first and foremost, they have to acknowledge the war exists, and secondly, they have to decide to fight this war because there are no exceptions. And there are there, and indifference is simply not a, 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 a position one can take when we talk about essentially being crucified you by a corporate system which is insensitive to the needs of human life. And I'll close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world and the community? Okay, uh, a few things. Um, uh, let's see. Um, there were uh, some forces that organized. Uh, the U.S.-Cuba uh, International U.S.-Cuba Normalization Conference this weekend uh, took, took place on March 11th and 12th uh, this past weekend in New York at Fordham University, and it was live streamed uh, through Zoom internationally. Uh, the purpose of the conference was to uh, – uh, to push uh, the U.S. government to, uh, to end the blockade of Cuba and to establish normal diplomatic relations, uh, therefore uh, thereby allowing, uh, you know, uh, trade between uh, Cuba and the U.S. And uh, let's see, and, and uh, this was a coalition of different forces. Uh, ranging from those who who generally support the Cuban Revolution to those who want access 
to the to the uh, Cuban market of uh, nearly eleven and a half million people. Uh, so it, it 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 was a mixed bag of sorts, and um, you know, and uh, you know, it was a coalition effort, and um, you know, and uh, you know, and uh, there were certain trade-offs, give and takes made in order to pull this off. Also, uh, let's see. Uh, time will tell whether this will result in an end to the. Uh, to 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 the blockade of Cuba or not, but also uh, China established uh, trade relations with Iran and Saudi Arabia, uh, and the significance of that is Iran is one of those uh, countries the U.S. government includes on its uh, on its uh, uh, state sponsors of terrorism list along with Cuba, Libya, um, and uh, several other countries uh, throughout the world. Uh, Let's see, and also uh, the struggle against um, uh, imperialism is intensifying uh, throughout the world, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere, in areas like uh, Brazil, uh, various parts of Africa and um, uh, in Palestine. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony, we're going to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world in the community? Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. <clears throat> well, there was a webinar today um, Nicaragua on Nicaragua and the revolution in Nicaragua and its progress and what's going on in Nicaragua, sponsored by the Alliance for Global Justice. Um, meanwhile, I don't know, the struggle continues. I, I, in the spirit of pastors for peace, um, I like to say, um, you know, we're born in a world of sin, shaped in iniquity, and come short of the glory of God. And so we're in a, we're in a, a path of becoming more Christ-like for those who are Christians that daily trying to get more personal and more Christ-like in their lives, and it's to be pursued but never obtained because the righteousness of the flesh can never enter heaven because it is carnal. That is why even Jesus felt forsaken during the moment of transition. Jesus committed no sin in God's eye because he was God, yet men regularly criticize him for sinning. To be in the flesh is to be in sin. His grace has given us what we don't deserve, his mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. God is your present help in the time of trouble. He never sleeps nor slumbers. Jesus works through people. And I just think, you know, we need uh, a liberation theology, and we need the correctness or incorrectness of the ideological and political land will be decisive in terms of the future. And so I, in that spirit, I, I present this. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, we now go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Well, we see that um, uh, China and uh, uh, sub-Saharan nations and other nations are trying to unite and move away from the, the dollar as the primary currency. 
And we saw that during the Obama uh, presidency, uh, it was a, a huge crisis. You know, Muammar Gaddafi wanted to see a united Africa. And uh, now we see that uh, China, whom uh, uh, really um, Richard Nixon laid the foundation in cutting a deal with China, ignoring the Soviet Union, where Western uh, imperialists would invest heavily into China and the development of China and now have done so. But now China may have been bought, but they're walking away. And uh, there's a potential uh, with the Ukrainian war and the crisis and many, many nations, the uh, Ukraine, the the Western position on the Ukrainian, Russian-Ukrainian uh, war, that um, there may be a new pact developing, a new um, a unity within Africa, um, um, hopefully to shake the shackles of colonialism. You see there are still sanctions as uh, uh, not only against Cuba, and uh, Venezuela and, uh, and and other nations, there are also sanctions against Zimbabwe. And uh, there's obviously uh, South Africa, who had been the friend of the West, as you can tell by the media, suddenly is being blasted. So um, as uh, Africa tries to rise and separate itself from its colonial uh, oppressors, you see uh, new relationships forming with uh, uh, China and uh, effort to establish a new currency other than the dollar. And even uh, the Saudis, who <clears throat> demanded that dollars be used, U.S. dollars, are thinking about using other currencies for the sale of their oil. So this right now is a wonderful time for Africa because suddenly the oil and the resources of Africa are far more valuable with what has is happening in Europe and the shut off of Russian uh, oil and gas. So it looks like it's a bright time for for Africa and we hope to see what happens in the next uh, year, 2023. And uh uh, the way Africa can shake its debts and move away from the uh, its imperial imperialist oppressors. We'll see what happens, but uh, it's good to see that we're moving to see a change in currency, controlling the currency. The dollar had been king for so very long, so the United States is struggling right now to hang on. But we will see if there is a change in, in currency for the sale of natural resources such as um, oil, gas, and other uh, um, prime resources like cobalt and the rest. Thank you. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Again, this is Africa on the Moon. I'm your host, Brother Africa. If you are listening to our program this evening on our board and you have any questions or comments, please hit one and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. What I would like to do right now, as we talk about what's going on in our world and your community, 
they have some reoccurring, reoccurring things that are going on from one generation to another. And panelists, I'd like to have your explanation on how can we change this narrative or how can we um, um, fight these narratives so there will no longer be a negative um, hindrance to our people development. Now, at the opening of the program, Sister Soldier said a couple of things which I thought were very interesting in terms of the narratives that are going from one generation to another. How can we change it? One of the narratives is that she said, you should know your enemy from your friends. Panelists, can you give our listening audience a perspective on what tools do we need or how do we distinguish the difference between who are our enemies and who are our friends? But it seems like each generation will continue to make the same mistake over and over and over and don't see the trick. Start off with you, Brother Haki. What tools do we need? How can we tell the difference between who are our enemies and who are our friends? Talk to me, Brother Haki. Yeah, well, the, the, the only way to, to, to reasonably discern, you know, who's the enemy and who's your friend is uh, your ability to deconstruct or your ability to, to listen, to analyze, and, and to make sense in terms of what's being said. Often people make comments under the guise that what they're saying is, in fact, empowering. But on, sur- on deeper inspection, you, f- you, you realize that a lot of what they're articulating is not only uh, ironic, but certainly not geared toward the empowerment of people. So we got to understand that when we talk about our enemies, you got to understand that often our enemies, you know, come bearing gifts. They come as though somehow they're legitimately concerned about the strife of you know, strife con- con- uh, uh, impacting African people, but in reality that's not the situation. To give you a classic example, uh, one of the things that's very, very interesting, a lot of these people, a lot of individuals on the left, uh, uh, you know, uh, particularly the white left, they have this tendency that when, they, when you talk about pan-Africanism, they have this tendency to define people who, who involved in the pan-African struggle as cultural as cultural artists or cultural or cultural activists. Now, the, the, the thing is that what you understand is that by calling you a cultural activist, they're negating the political aspect in terms of your, your struggles. They are devaluing the struggles in terms of Africa and the importance of struggle in Africa. So what they're saying is that by being cultural, you're just talking about something that's only only important when it comes to Africa, but not important to me. So such a person like that could never be perceived in an objective manner as a as a friend. A person who articulates something like that, then I immediately you know I immediately see them as an adversary. I see them as an adversary because I realize in their heart of heart in their unconsciousness, they have internalized a lot of the same racism that we routinely fight routinely fight against. Uh, they have internalized it, and so when it comes out in terms of the kind of statements that they make. Another one is when they say that, uh, well, you know, uh, in terms of waging, waging struggle for African people, you must be nonviolent. Well, for any white person to tell me that i got to be nonviolent to wage the struggle, number one, I'm offended by the fact that you're going to tell me how to wage the war, but secondly, you're going to negate the struggles in terms of very painful struggles in terms of the brutality that we face on a, on a day-to-day basis. You're going to liquidate all that by saying, that if you engage in struggle, then you're essentially your, your, your struggle is illegitimate. That, to me, is an enemy. So we understand we have to listen very, very carefully, and we shouldn't conclude simply because someone is smiling or someone says it with a kind disposition that they're really, that they're really you know, in your corner. So I think to, large, to, that, to, to that extent, our ability to deconstruct, 
uh, 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 strategic understanding of the world is very, very important in terms of assessing who's your friend and who's your enemy. And that's one of the things I keep advocating in terms of in terms of people. I'm saying, kids, listen, you must read. It helps your analytical skills. And so when you run into the BS, it's easier it's easier it's easier to 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 recognize the BS. Uh, you know, when you have multiple sources dancing around in your head in terms of making sense of what's been said. So clearly, you know, we have to, in, in order to be able to define who's our enemy, who's our friend, we have to be able to deconstruct speech. Because if we can't deconstruct speech, we'll continue to be deceived and tricked, you know, by people who are, in fact, you know, our adversaries or our enemies. So I'll close with that. Brother Haki, can your enemy come and live in the same community that you live in, look like you, and maybe a, a professor or some kind of academic? Scholar who says he has your issues at heart? No, no question, no question about that, brother Africa. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not negating the, I'm not negating the class element in terms of being able to deconstruct speech. Of course, in the African community, when you go back to slavery, there was a reason why they had hush hop. There's a reason why certain Africans had to separate from other Africans to discuss liberation because those other Africans would have went back and told their masters what what, what was what was being planned. So we do understand in terms of you know uh, you know your your enemy is, is you know, I mean I'm not I'm not raising that to be to be superficial I'm only raising in it to the extent that one of the things that when we talk about moving forward in society see either we can move forward collectively in terms of bringing about you know real positive change in society or we're not so if you tell me that in fact that you're in, you're, you're you're dedicated to moving this society forward then I'm gonna hold you to that. In that context, when we talk about the split between the progressive left and the progressive white people, uh, then I'm saying that that's a split that shouldn't exist. But it doesn't negate by any stretch of the imagination the class element that you're raising by the Africa in terms of you got people who are just like you who will smile at you and tell you, oh, everything is fine, no problem. You know, uh, you, know, you, can, you, you know, you can vote, and if you vote, it's all good. There's no problem at all. It's not to say that people are, are, trying, to, uh, are trying to mislead you. That's not the point. The point is, is that, that that analysis comes from is a very shallow analysis in terms of how the world operates, and so in that context, when you try to get that person or that individuals in terms of moving forward, in terms of implementing a real struggle, in terms of bringing about real change in society, the reality is that you're probably not going to achieve in your endeavors. In that sense, and you have to see that person as an adversary, as an enemy, and not and that doesn't mean because you see them as an enemy that you're going to that you're going to disrespect them, that you're going to treat them bad, or you're going to or you're going to put them down, any of that stuff. It doesn't mean any of that stuff. It means that in terms of implementing certain strategies in terms of moving forward, it's, it, it means that certain strategies are not for these individuals, and you wouldn't even approach those individuals around certain strategies because it would be ironic because you realize that these people are not ready for the kind of strategy that you're, that, you're, that, you're, that you're talking about in terms of empowerment. And so, therefore, in that context, in terms of pushing the movement forward, they're seen as an adversary, not in a, not in a, in a, in a hostile sense of the word, but in a sense that they're not ready in terms of being able to push forward different strategies in terms of achieving liberation in society. But your point is right, Brother Alfie, you're absolutely correct. It's not a, not a question of color. I only raise the question of color because the whole thing is that if, if in fact, we're committed to in terms of changing this paradigm and creating a new reality, then people who say that they're about real change, uh, people who are supposed to be about real change, people who dedicate their life to real change, I have more expectation from them. And so when they talk, I listen. And when they say stuff that's, that's ironic, or they say stuff that's, t- that's tantamount to liquidating the need for struggle, 
then I don't see these people as 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 a as a as a as a, as a, as a friend. I see them as an adversary. And 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 I, I understand your point, Brother Africa, but that is I think is is, is very, very important in the context when we talk about just in terms of quantitative arguments. You know, when we talk about numbers of people in terms of pushing this thing forward, quantitative argument becomes extremely important in terms of the ability to move this thing forward. So people quantitatively, you know, are, are out there in large numbers, but you're articulating the same uh, anti-revolutionary uh, anti, uh, 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 rhetoric that uh, the ruling class articulates, then how could I perceive you as, as, as a friend? I perceive you as an enemy, rightfully so. And so I realized that in that context, these people, I would never approach these people around the idea in terms of doing anything that's outside of their comfort zone because I realized they're simply not there yet. And, and, and But you're right, Brother Africa, the class argument does hold. And if I didn't make that clear the first time, you know, I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna thank you for making me clarify my position, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hakeem. Brother Anthony, what tools do our people need to have, or how can we distinguish the difference between who are our enemy and who are our friends? Brother Anthony. Add, I would add uh, to, to the points that uh, Brother Hakeem made that, uh, that we have to study our history. We have to study our history and our culture. And uh, that means that uh, that primarily the uh, the education of our youth must be controlled by us. Uh, for uh, for uh, for nearly half uh, for nearly half a century, we've allowed other people who are who who, who do not have who do not understand or know our culture teach our youth and uh and uh, we and we see the results of that today is rampant neocolonialism going on in our community and uh in order to put an end to that we have to take control of the education of our youth and our people in general and i think uh, and i think that's key particularly history because uh, understanding history will ha- will give us the tools we need to tell uh, to distinguish a uh, fr- uh, uh, friend and enemy, regardless of whether they look like us or not. Uh, but uh, but 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 having uh, de- developing those ana- analytical tools and a study of history is critical. In order to uh, in order to um, you know uh, uh, combat neocolonialism, which is the number one, which is the primary method that capitalism manifests itself in our communities today worldwide, is neocolonialism, and to a lesser extent, other forms of exploitation such as capitalism, Zionism, racism, etc. But uh, a study of history and uh, a study of our culture is critical. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Going to Brother Moses, how do we distinguish who are our friends and who are who are our enemies, Brother Moses? 
certainly that question is the critical question in any revolution, who are our friends and who are our enemies. And certainly we have the objective of political economy, of scientific socialism as an objective, and we must measure our friends and our enemies from that standpoint, um, who is for us and who is against us. Um, that we find that in, in class society, there's the working class, and then there's the petty bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie. And, you know, this grades of um, economic strata in society. And uh, in in the U.S., we've, we've chosen as a revolutionary theory, there's the guide to revolutionary action, that the 1% represents the, the direction of the main blow, and that um, because they control so much of the economy, and we need to liberate the economy and, and, and use it in the service of the people. And so the question is, who who can we rely on in the struggle? And we know that the petty bourgeoisie is vacillating, and they're here and there, and, uh, and um, we, they cannot lead the struggle. They are part of the struggle because they are oppressed but they cannot lead because they're too vacillating. And so the working class itself must must come to the fore and uh, work out its self-determination up to including independence and, um, and, and we have a theory of revolutionary scientific socialism as, as, as founded by Karl Marx and advanced by Frederick Engels B. I. Lennon, Joseph Stalin, and Mao Zedong, and so I'm, I, my objective is clear. Uh, my ideological stand is is, is firm. Um, I go back uh, and studied history and studied history and and the struggle bring about a a just society has gone on from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses, to David, to Jesus, and it continues the, the struggle with, with uh, to bring truth and justice to the fore. And it's a lot easier said than done, but, but this, it's a continuous struggle, and, and we must engage in it and uh, set the captives free in terms of political prisoners and, and take control of this government. Uh, but we need a political party that's revolutionary, that's, that's bound and firm in its theory and unwavering. And uh, it's in the struggle against Trotskyites that we, we've been steeled, in, in, uh, and we continue to struggle uh, to this day. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, talk to us. And, and your question is, Brother Africa. How do you distinguish who are who are your friends and who are your enemies? Well, I'm gonna have to um the fellow analyst, Brother Aki Anthony, as well as Robert's um Marxist analysis says it all, but there's still a little more. We look at the rise of the worker movement right now in the United States. Just as industry has changed, 
so has labor had to adapt and change. So we see people like uh, Smalls, uh, who was a simple line worker at an Amazon factory, who becomes a, a, a huge revolutionary. Uh, you saw him speaking uh, this week at the uh, Forum to Normalize Cuban Relations at Fordham University. So um, revolutionaries come from the working class those most often at the bottom of the working class. Because as we know, the petty bourgeoisie and many members of the middle class feel that there's no problem because they have uh, what they, the, the comforts of life. They feel they have uh, good wages, they have adequate housing, they are unaware and uninformed of the environmental crisis that we're living through they are confused about the miseducation of their children. They think it's a political phenomena rather than a, a oppression, a type of uh, intellectual genocide. So the struggle is, and the way we identify our allies is what I can speak to, and that's the people that are at that time aligned with your goals, goals of liberating the working class, the 99%. And that's how you can, you you work with those people. And they are the youth. Us silver-haired people can guide them and share our experience, but they are the leaders and the people who will have to lead us forward. So I think it's What's important is how do we identify um, our leaders and not be duped into forming allegiance with the um, kind-speaking, petty bourgeoisie, neo-colonialist fashion uh, uh, of folk. And I think we do that by looking at the struggle that they are engaged in such as uh, organizing the Amazon Union, having allegiance with uh, Cuba, Venezuela, and other oppressed countries, reading, studying, and being aware of the impact that these sanctions have on nations and on people and everyday citizens, how they are deprived of medical resources and others. And I guess the best way to really if I were a political leader to identify my enemies would be to form close allegiance with Cuban people because Cuban people have been an example since their revolution of how you protect your revolutionary leaders such as Fidel Castro and others from would-be assassins, whether it's the CIA or uh, any other European or uh, uh, uh fascist um, group, whether it's the uh, uh, the Zionists or whomever it may be. So I would uh, develop close relations with them in terms of understanding my uh, enemies and also understanding how to keep our leaders safe. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. 
Now, my last question for this segment before we make a transition into our theme today, part three, Africa is fighting, is that also Sister Soldier made the issue of steady and narrative that goes from one generation to the next, and we seem, we seem not to still recognize the issue of, she said we are at war. The Soldier and Truth made a similar statement. She said that if her if she could have convinced our, her people, if, if if our people would have realized they was enslaved or they were enslaved, she could have saved more of them. Now I'm just wondering in terms of this this propaganda that we hear all the time about this question of what is a war and how we are being deceived in, in the terms of not understanding that we are at war. How do we get our people to really understand the, the, the statement that we are at war, Brother Haki. Africa, Brother Africa, you are, you are, you are creating a, um, a, um, <laughs> a serious, you generated a serious discussion around that question. Uh, one of the things that, you know, when you, when you say you're at war, it's important you know, that we have to, you know, from a starting point, I think we have to look at the social economic indicators of society and then ask yourself the question, why? So when you look at in terms of unemployment, homelessness, uh, incarceration rates, uh, poverty, I mean, look at all of these social economic indicators. You ask yourself, why African historically, not just in contemporary times, but historically, have always been at the bottom? And so you got to conclude that something fundamentally wrong, that something fundamentally skewed. But what happens is that because we don't take the time in terms of, you know, reading those kinds of things, we have a position that perhaps that, you know, that we're much too evolved to even concern ourselves in terms of things that happen, you know, in terms of the system. Uh, we would like to believe that the system is much more involved, and so therefore all we have to do is pretend everything's okay and everything's going to be all right. So I think it's this, 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 this propensity to pretend, I think, it gets us in real trouble. I think to a large extent, a lot of us don't understand that we're at war. And so when you look in terms of police brutality, you know, in the African community, you ask yourself the question, why do these police continue to kill unarmed African men and women? Why is that? Well, if you take a, a cursory look through history in terms of, you know, propensity in terms of killing innocent African people, then you arrive at your, at, 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 at your question. Uh, you, 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 know, you arrive, you know, so... Um, you know, but the problem, again, is that a lot of this stuff is very, very, um, very, very difficult to, 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 to assess. Uh, one of the things, when you start talking about in terms of intimately understanding the history in terms of our people, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all. In fact, for a lot of people, emotionally, it's emotionally draining, and they, they would rather not even deal with it at all. They want to pretend like everything is, is fine. But the problem is this, in terms of war. You know, as this economy deteriorates, and keep no make no mistake about it, capitalism is, deteriorates all the time. And in fact, at some point, it's going to deteriorate to the point in which there is no return. Earlier, I mentioned the fact that every four to seven years, uh, capitalism goes into a recession. Well, the reason why it goes into a recession is because those people who control the money supply are not concerned in terms of the well-being of masses of people in society. Their bottom line is to make more profit. And because of fixations on making profit, what happens to the masses of the people in the society becomes unimportant. But here's the problem. As the people in the society don't have access to things, uh, material things, in terms of being able to live, they act out. 
they pose a unique problem for the system stability at large, which means that people in positions of power have to do something to keep those people who don't have access to food, shelter, housing, and so forth in check. Well, typically what you utilize, you use violence, violence, particularly police violence, to keep them in check. Now, here's the thing. As a number of African people who don't have access to those things that they need in terms of food, shelter, uh, uh, education, and so forth and so on, as our numbers continue to increase, then we become much, much more visible in terms of as adversaries to anything. So we perceive, to a greater extent, as an adversary than any other group in the society. And that has a large historical precedent in terms of why that is so. And understanding that it, as, a, as the number of disinfected, as the number of as the impoverishment and quality grows in society, and African people being in the front, then we have to understand that we, vis-a-vis, are in fact the quintessential enemy. This is what we have to understand. And because we're perceived as the enemy, we're treated as the enemy. Well, how do you treat an enemy? Well, you don't treat the enemy nicely. You treat them very brutally. And, and so if you look at the situation, in terms, the situation in terms of what's happening to African people, in terms of brutality that's inflicted by African people, whether I'm talking about police brutality, whether I'm talking about uh, uh, poorly educated school, poorly financed schools, and keep in mind they do poorly financed schools. All schools are not financed equally. Wealthier schools get much more money, something like $23 billion, compared to something like, I think it's $2 billion for the average urban center in terms of for education. So there's huge disparity. That is indicative of a war. When you talk about people have no having access to shelter and food, that is most the brutal kind of war. What you're saying is that what you're saying to people that fundamentally don't have a right to exist. Well, if you're telling people they don't have a right to exist, then what you're telling them, you're at war. Your your life is is, is, is your life is esoteric. In other words, if we can create a way in terms of getting rid of you, uh, and that's precisely what we're going to do, because all the win is war. We have to destroy people like you, people who serve no other interests other than create problems for the system. I think, I think fundamentally people have to understand the reality when we talk about a war. And, and in the 21st century, we're still trying to convince most of African people that you're at war. They still, most of our people haven't figured it out yet. Uh, I'm, I'm confident that increasingly uh, more and more of our people will begin to figure that out. But the problem is that as while we wait to figure out what's going on in terms of this war being waged against us, we got to understand the right wing has all the tools at its disposal. It has the media, it has the educational system, uh, it has the state governments, state corporations, all at its all at its at its all at its all at its all at its command. And because of that, they're able to 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 foment a message or create a message uh, which has not based in truth, but based on only what they want people to think. If they can convince the masses of people that African people are the enemy, what do you think the masses of people are going to do? You think they're going to join? The, you think they're going to join this war to help the masses of African people, or they're going to join the war to attack the masses of African people? That's I know that sounds simplistic. On this, on, on that sounds very, very simplistic. But when you talk about Christian nationalists and you talk about their desire in terms of seeing a culling, seeing the killing of large number of people in society who uh, who they deem God said shouldn't be here. When you look at that kind of propensity in terms of the church, when you look at terms of the right wing, and you talk about the, 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 the desire in terms of, you know, terms of liquidating or gridding the society of those people they, they deem unworthy of life, when you think about all this stuff, and specifically when you think about the fact when, when they say these things, they've got African people in the back of their mind, then why do you not consider that a war? Why do you not understand that that is a war? And as a war, then strategically and tactically, then we have to decide how we're going to move. 
but it's very difficult to decide how we're going to move if a matter of fact, people don't understand that you're at war. If you can talk to our people about terms of being at war, but if they don't understand that they're at war, they don't want to believe they're at war, they don't hear what you're saying. So the very dangerous paradox that we find ourselves confronted with, on the one hand, these people who are preparing to wipe us out because the system demands them demands that it does that, because keep in mind, systems do have a certain amount of inertia, there's a certain amount of resistance to change. So in order to maintain this capitalist system, it means the destruction of people, then guess what? That's what's going to happen. So this war against masses of people, particularly African people, will persist. It will continue. Uh, so therefore, you know, it seems to me, you know, uh, that we have to come to the realization that this, that this war is protracted. It's not going anywhere. And we have to, and we as an oppressed people have to devise strategic and strategic uh, strategy and tactic in terms of how we're going to respond to that. At the very minimal, we have to create the conditions to save the emotional and intellectual uh, stability of our children. If you do nothing else, if you just create the conditions to protect the emotional and intellectual stability of the children, then you're doing a, a lot. But clearly, Brother Africa, that's a very good question that you raised, and I'm certainly hoping that as time, as time ticks away, uh, more and more about people will come to the realization that this is, in fact, a war. I'm hoping that the general, poor people generally will understand this is a war. But I'm not going to hold my breath waiting for everybody in society to, to realize it's a war. I think the situation just in terms of, in just in terms of how, uh, how, um, how potentially destructive it can be, uh, that destructive is much more likely to come down heavily on African people. So I'm particularly concerned that African people understand that this is a war. So along the way, if others want to join us in terms of fighting this war, then fine. But it's all, it's the onus is on African people to understand this is a war, and we have to stand together. We have to devise tactics and strategy in terms of how we move forward in the face of this war. But it's a, it's a long struggle, Brother Africa, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, Sister Soldier told you we are at war. When you look at the history I've maintained that, Brother Anthony, that we got to change this narrative of how they begin that history when they talk about the so-called first slave ships that came to Africa. They weren't slave ships. They were warships. Slavery is an act of war. They were warships. They were warships then, and they warships today. NATO is, is talking about having warships all over the Pacific and Atlantic Ocean to control how and where you can travel on those seas. And if you are not their ally, they are talking about limiting you from traveling. This is the same thing they did when they first came to Africa and wanted to dominate the world. So when this question, when one said we are at war, Brother Anthony, how do we get our people to conceptualize the various forms of war, what war looked like, feel like, et cetera? Oh, well, the reason why First of all, the reason why our people don't realize we're at war is because uh, we're subject to bourgeois propaganda, and uh, and they and uh, people think that the war is over in Europe primarily, but it's really a war against uh, between the haves and the have-nots. And uh, I go back to a point I made earlier. We have to take control of our people's education, especially of history. And, uh, and uh, you're correct. The slave ships that came to Africa were warships. Enslavement is an act of war. People don't realize that, though. 
and that is because of uh, of uh, the propaganda put forth by the bourgeoisie, which uh, controls the educational system of our people, especially our youth. That's why a lot of us don't understand we are at war, because we are disorganized as a people, for one, and also we have got to do a better job of politically educating each other. But that can only be done if we are organized. In our disorganized state, we, are, we, we, we continue to be subject to miseducation by, uh, by uh, 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 the propaganda of the ruling class. That is why we don't understand why we're at war. Now, uh, now uh, let's see. Uh, and, uh, you know, it is a major ideological problem. It is not, uh, it is not primarily, it, 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 it's beyond economic, it's beyond political, it's an ideological problem. Harriet Tubman realized this when she, she made the observation that she could have freed more more, 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 more enslaved Africans if they realized they were slaves. So that points to how people think, and uh, we ha- and we're in a struggle to change the way people think. And uh, and 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 it's an ideological struggle, and uh, it's a protracted one, unfortunately. Because the enemy's tools of propaganda are more powerful than ours, so we have to, uh, you know, uh, do the best we can to politically educate the masses of our people and get them organized, so that we can triumph in this war that's against us. But the key thing is is that we have to realize we're at war. And once we realize that, then we'll be able to uh, plan accordingly our resistance better. But we're disorganized right now, and that's why we don't realize we're at war. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Moses. I believe that Brother Steve Biko stated that the greatest weapon the enemy has over African people is the control of their mind. We have lost that damn mind. Now, how do we get our minds back, Brother F., Brother Moses? Free yourself from mental slavery. Only we can free our minds. Um, we have a situation where we're, we're struggling. Uh, we, as what does it say? Freedom ain't nothing but a word. What's the word? Communism, socialism. What's the word? And uh, that we we are born. We we in a situation where the ruling class is warring against communism, warring against socialism, and 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 the idea is repulsive to them. More, more or less, and more more greater than that, the fact of of it. The, the actual implementation of socialism and communism is is repulsive to them, but even the idea be, is repulsive. And so we're struggling 
in uh, a war to break through the propaganda and uh, and the ideological uh, prison that um, the bourgeoisie, the ruling class, tries to keep us within. The, the ideas of the ruling class are always the dominant idea in society, and we, so we're trying to create another ruling class by 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 um, perpetuating scientific socialism and the idea of freedom and justice and fair play, and uh, and we have to organize the grassroots. We have to from the bottom up. Uh, there's me no illusions about that. Uh, we we have to struggle on all fronts, the political, economic, and and ideological struggle, and um, and and you know, full time job, um, twenty four hours a day, three hundred sixty five days a year. We're struggling. Uh, this trying to bring truth where there's incorrect ideas and misinformation. It's a constant struggle every day, individual struggles with our neighbors, with our friends, and uh, and we have to keep politics in command and keep our eyes on the prize. Thank you. Keep our eyes on the prize. Europeans to the prize is the control and domination of Africa and African people. Since Eleanor. If someone said we are at war, how do you conceptualize that statement? Your response. We're obviously at war. Uh, You see the homelessness. You see the uh, devastating impact of uh, global warming. Uh, You see uh, the miseducation of our children. And as... um, uh, Anthony said it was like Harriet Tubman, who, for example, uh, went to retrieve her husband, a free man, and move, bring him north to then Pennsylvania. And he rejected the idea. So she did not waste that trip. She felt all the sorrow of a human being. She wasn't perfect. But she took another family. Uh, a husband and wife and three children and made it north. So the the idea in, in the West, what has happened with the media, is that the minds of the people are controlled. So for those who are organizing, they have to um, be careful of the words they use because first they have to explain the ideas. They have to literally teach what the struggle is, and that the struggle is um, the working class against the 1% and whom the working class is and the strata of the working class. And this is where education comes into play. We have to educate our people, and the miseducation of our people also come into play and that we're extraordinarily divided and we have to make sure that we don't become arrogant and condescending but rather we uh, assist and aid people in coming to a type of enlightenment 
because we certainly are at war. And if a woman who was, Harriet had an incredible, Harriet Tubman had an incredible education, though she couldn't read and write. Her parents taught her about the waterways, about the land, herbal medicine, but something else. Life taught her what it was like to see children torn from their mother and father, never to be seen again, to see people just removed from her life, never seen again. And she knew that was slavery. So the deal is here today, we see these things happening. The rents are so high, your neighbors move away. There's no neighborhood stability. People are moving in and out, piled on each other. You see children who who have no history. Uh, they don't know their own history, nor do their parents. You see young adults. I was talking to a young adult today, and I was listening to a video quite frankly, that uh, you had sent us, Brother Africa, uh, and it was the first president of Ghana. And she didn't know who he was or what he was, and she thought he was uh, a guy literally down the street just putting together uh, a video. So the issue really is education. And and, And to be an educator, you need to love the people and have compassion and love for them in order to teach them. And you look at a country like Cuba, where uh, literacy is so high, and you look at the United States, 90 miles away, and we have uh, an incredibly low literacy rate right now on the world scale. So we have to remember that we are at war And the people do not realize how uninformed and miseducated and uneducated they are. So for those who are, they have to gently lead their neighbors, their churches, their civic organizations, these people forward. And we can do it. We must not feel defeated because we are not. We are, the power is in our hands. And we have this opportunity in this life to bring about change, global change. Our lives, all of our lives depend on it. And like Harriet Tubman says, there's no going back once you step on the road of liberation. Because that's the most dangerous person, the person who knows what's at stake and can go back and inform your enemy of your activities and your actions. So once we step on the road to revolution, liberation, and face the fact that we are an oppressed people, we begin to understand like things like nutricide. That's where you're killing people through the food they're eating. Uh, a brother Africa wrote this book back in 1993 about just how they're killing us Africans with just what we eat and how if we change it, we can change disease in our life. Carter G. Woodson wrote a simple book, The Miseducation of the Negro, in 1929. Everyone should read it. It's a simple book. There's a 
there's, there's, as Brother Haiki says, you must read and study. As Brother Anthony says, you've got to organize. As Brother Haiki says, and as Brother Moses says, revolution is the answer. And I concur with all of my fellow analysts. And the job is ours. And just like Harriet Tubman, we may we may not be able to stand in her shadow. We're talking about women and women liberation. This is a woman that was five foot one when she refused to hold a, a, a runaway slave child in a general store. A man in that store became so enraged he picked up a metal block and struck Harriet in the head. She had seizures for the rest of her life. She was a disabled person. Not only was she uh, an enslaved African in America, she was also a disabled woman leading the road to liberation for more than 1,000 people. And she also fought in the Civil War. So we are at war. We've been at war. And 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 victory is ahead, but we should not think that we've won. We're still on the road of a great struggle. What's happened since the 1960s is unbelievable. We saw that when Ngrumah was was killed, uh, when Ngrumah had to move into exile, I believe, uh, if my history is correct, I, I'm I'm learning it that he. Uh, was protected by Sekuture, but we also saw that there was an assassination, and at the time of the assassination, there was a black man that was the ambassador from the U.S. who claimed he knew nothing about it, but it seemed like the CIA has always been involved in the killing and the murder of Africans. Now we can even see the great revolutionary Moa Gaddafi's assassination on the Internet. If someone would dare to look at it, I could not, because revolution is not about looking at disasters and the destruction of revolutionaries. It's about education, organizing, and moving forward. And yes, we are at war. Thank you, thank you, Sister Eleanor. Um, I'd like to make this statement, and we're going to a transitional point. We're going to share with you some some footage as relates to our theme tonight. And when we come back, we're going to make our transition to discussing that theme tonight, which is part three, Africa is fighting. But one thing I would like to say is, you know, it's important how we present our history, the presentation of African history. And one of the narratives we definitely have to change is this whole idea that Africans could not be the right, that we were just illiterate people, we couldn't function. That's a bunch of bullshit. And I say that because, no, they took some of, or if, all, if not the most, they took the, some of the best and brightest and most conscious Africans that were functioning on the continent. We had a civilization and life where before that was the Europe. When they came to Africa, we had our own form of, of communication, our own languages that we could speak. We had our own form of communications, our own form of writings. So Africans could write. 
They couldn't speak. They were very intelligent. Just to give you a sense of how intelligent we were, if you look at some of these inventions, when we first got here, that was invented, it was all invented by Africans. And the Europeans took them and patented them. You don't come up with these kind of inventions if you're not intelligent, if you can't read and write. We had no need to want to, to know how to uh, speak their language because we never encountered them. I can guarantee you that more Africans could speak more languages than no colonizers could. And definitely knew they were a lot more creative, more vital, just based on looking at history, the things they have created. So we need to change the narrative and stop saying about they couldn't read and write. They may not read and write the enemy language. And that's understandable. When you come across something foreign, it takes time to learn it. But don't create that narrative that if we were just some innate people, Africans were some of the most intelligent people on the planet of the earth at that time, if not deep at the time. So anyway, we got to be real careful um, in terms of start pushing that narrative. Now, we talk about enslaved Africans. We talk about highly intelligent people. So at this point in time, what we're going to do is we're going to play a couple of clippings that is like a backdrop for our upcoming discussion when we come back on part three, Africa is fighting. Think about these clippings as relates to this um, discussion we're going, to, we're going to hold when we come back. This is Africa on the move, brother. Africa saying that Africa will be free. So let's go to this piece called A Race for Africa. Then we're going to talk about this whole question of um, how do you plot and plan to make Africans become them under the title Trick Baby dinner scene in one of the movies. And when we come back, we will discuss the theme. Part three, Africa is fighting. Today we'll talk about Africa, once seen by Europe as the antithesis of civilization, the heart of darkness in the words of a certain Joseph Conrad. Centuries later, Africa remains ignored. It makes news for its conflicts, poverty and exoticism. For the longest time, the world saw it as a lost cause. Then one country saw opportunity and thus began a new race for Africa, not very different from the scramble of the 19th century when colonial Britain and France wanted raw materials, slaves and geopolitical influence. Now in the 21st century, global powers are in more or less the same race. China, the United States, India, the European Union, Japan, Israel, Canada, all of these countries are in the race for Africa. And one country is emerging as the clear winner. Hello and welcome to Gravitas Plus. I'm Palki Sharma Upadhyay and this is Africa, a continent of 54 sovereign states, 17% of the world's population, 9.6% of the global oil output, 90% of the world's platinum supply, 90% of the world's cobalt supply, half of the world's gold supply, two-thirds of the world's manganese. 35% of the world's uranium, 75% of the world's coltan, and 54 votes in the United Nations General Assembly. This is what makes Africa so attractive and makes the continent a battleground for global powers. There are numerous fronts, investment and infrastructure, military power, diplomacy, soft power, trade, geopolitics. Every country has its own interest in Africa. In 2016, Israel began its scramble for the continent. 
Benjamin Netanyahu became the first Israeli Prime Minister to visit Africa in 50 years. What did he want? Votes. In favor of Israel and against Palestine in the United Nations resolutions. Africa and Israel share similar histories, he said. Israel went on to sponsor solar, water and agricultural technologies. In the same year, 2016, Senegal co-sponsored a UN resolution. It condemned the construction of illegal Jewish settlements in the West Bank. What did Israel do? It cancelled the Mashav drip irrigation project. And this is just one example. Here's another one. The European Union has pledged more than $54 billion in sustainable investment for Africa. What does the EU want? Access to the African market of 1.3 billion people. Brussels has negotiated free trade agreements with at least 40 African countries. But does this ensure a balanced two-way trade? It doesn't. And no country has a bigger interest in Africa than China. China is funding one in five infrastructure projects in Africa. It is building every third one. Africa has an infrastructure deficit and China has a signed checkbook. Starting 2005, China has invested at least $2 trillion in Africa. It built 6,200 kilometers of railways, including the continent's longest railway line connecting Ethiopia and Djibouti. Beijing has also built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. What does China get in return? A lot. Geopolitical influence to start with. Beijing is selling its culture, its currency. In Guinea-Bissau, exit signs are written in Mandarin. China has established at least 50 Confucius Institutes across 33 countries. Several African countries use Chinese currency. China also gets a strategic overseas base. In 2017, China built its first overseas base at the Horn of Africa, Djibouti to be specific. Djibouti connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indian Ocean via the Suez Canal. The base has the capacity to accommodate 10,000 troops. China also gets a market to dump its goods. China is Africa's largest trading partner. Chinese trade has increased 40-fold in the last two decades. At least 10,000 Chinese firms operate in Africa. This is according to a McKinsey study. Africa has resources and China has access. Did you know that a third of China's investments in Africa are in the mining sector? And finally, it gets to debt trap Africa. But here's the thing. China is not the only country investing in this continent. It's not even the biggest. The United States is Africa's largest investor. It accounts for $54 billion of FDI stock. There are 600 American companies operating in South Africa alone. And this, even after the U.S. president called Africa this. For the longest time, Africa was nothing but a war zone for Washington. It has over 7,000 troops deployed in the continent. They are spread across some 13 African countries, including Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Libya, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, South Sudan, Somalia, and Tunisia. For the U.S., Africa was a continent for counter-terrorism operations. What happened then? Why is the U.S. suddenly interested in Africa? The answer is this. For the U.S., Africa is now a new front to take on China, and Washington is now fighting it out for power and influence. An article on the U.S. State Department website reads, and I quote, Africa is the continent of the future. Thus, we need to make the most of its potential. By 2050, its population will more than double to 2.2 billion people with over 60% under the age of 25. Where is Africa's interest in all of this? Also, what about India? What role does India play in this continent? New Delhi's ties with Africa date back to the time of Mahatma Gandhi. India was part of the Bandung project, 
1955. New Delhi supported Africa's anti-colonial struggles. It supported the liberalization movements in Ghana, Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. India also raised the issue of racism in South Africa. It will be unfair to say, though, that India's newfound interest in Africa has nothing to do with China. In 2018, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi toured key African states just ahead of Chinese President Xi Jinping's visit. In 2018, India decided to open 18 new embassies in Africa. India has defence partnerships with Zambia, Nigeria, Ghana, Ethiopia, Botswana, Uganda, Mozambique, and Namibia. New Delhi is currently training African military. Indian company Airtel is a dominant telecom firm in Africa. New Delhi is offering 50,000 scholarships to African students. Despite everything, India is far behind China in the race for Africa. China's Belt and Road Initiative has sealed its hold on Africa. If in the 1900s Africa was colonized with force, in 2020 it is being trapped by loans. China accounts for 14% of sub-Saharan debt. In Kenya, the volume of Chinese loans is six times that of France, which is the country's second largest creditor. And Sri Lanka can tell you what happens when Chinese loans are not repaid. China is looking to capture Africa. It has a strong diaspora. It is spending big money. It is selling its movies, culture, and currency. China extracts raw materials. It manufactures products with them and sells them back to this continent. Does this remind you of something? What did the British do in India? In the 19th century, the rivalry between Britain and France fueled Africa's colonization. In the 21st century, the trade war between the United States and China is hastening the same. Just like the 19th century, there are numerous countries in the scramble for Africa, and just like the 19th century, there is nothing in it for Africa. Gravitas Plus, co-presented by Skoda. Uh, it's you liberals who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul. You conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard. You liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Oh, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> That makes it even worse. Oh, you know we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has any. He becomes alien to his brothers. They realize he sold them out, and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. That's no thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color. He's become one of us.
Control Africa African people 
And we play another footage about how they use various techniques to get African people to co-op and want to act like and be like and unite with them against the interests of our people liberation. At this point in time, we're going to make a quick announcement, and then we're going to go into our transition as we talk about our theme tonight, part three, Africa is fighting. That's right, Africa is fighting. What we would like to do is make an important announcement to our friends, supporters, and listening audience. If you listen to this program, uh, Africa on the Moon wants you to join and support the Africa on the Moon radio um, fan club by making a contribution today and supporting our ongoing work and programming for our people. And you can do that by sending a contribution to Zelly. And you can send it to African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com. Yes, you can use Zelle, all small caps, all together, send it to African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com, or you can do it by Cash App. Dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. That's right. You can send it to Cash App. If you don't have Zelle, you can send it to Cash App. And you put in a dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. We are now trying to create and develop a support and fan club. We need your support because there's a lot of work to be done. And without economic, when there's economic dependency, you know, there can't be no freedom. So brothers and sisters, come and help us and also help build the station by spreading the word. And if you'd like to have a copy of this program and others, you can email us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com, and we'll send you a copy to link to this program and others and spread the word. We're going to build our listening audiences up to additional 100-plus within the next six months. So that's an important announcement. You get a call. We appreciate it. So let's get back to this discussion tonight, which is part three, Africa is fighting. <coughs> Excuse me. What we're going to do right now to our panelists and analysts, we're going to ask you about your perspective. There was a video that was sent to you earlier. <coughs> Excuse me. That was given Sister Malin Bach Williams. She was a sister who was born in Serbia. She ended up being raised in Germany, <coughs> but she was critiquing life and what Serbia represents to her, to a very sophisticated, wealthy audience, European audience. And she had a different uh, narrative in terms of how she saw Serbia in Africa. And Brother Haki, one of the things she talked about. Well, she, she, she challenged the narrative that Africa is a country of death, poverty, and um, death, poverty, and poor. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'd like for you, baby, speak to when you saw how she dealt with presenting Sonny Owen, which was completely contrary to that narrative of being viewed in the light of being something in the dead, something in poor, something in poverty. <clears throat> I felt it was real crazy in terms of how she young dealt with it. So when you saw that piece, Brother Hockey, how did it move you? Yeah, on that, on that piece, Brother Africa, I have to pass on that because um, on that particular piece, uh, I didn't really focus in on that, so I apologize for that. But uh, you can go to the next uh, panelist. 
I said, thank you, Brother Hackney. Brother Anthony, your response when you saw that piece, how did it move you? I mean, it showed showed that that, uh, uh, Sierra Leone is actually rich in natural resources. And that it uh, and that uh, and it, and it had advanced societies that uh, that engaged in uh, in commerce uh, uh, and trade with the other uh, you know ethnic groups in that area, and that is actually rich in natural resources as most as is most of Africa. And, uh, you know, it's because of uh, capitalist exploitation that the people of Africa are impoverished. But, uh, but the land itself is rich in natural resources such as, uh, you know, uh, uh, various minerals, uh, plant life. And uh, it has, uh, and and because uh, it climate uh, varies uh, throughout the continent, it can support different types of plants and uh, and, and foodstuffs. As a matter of fact, prior uh, prior to the 20th century, Africa was a, a food exporter. And, uh, and uh, you know, and the fact that a lot of Africans in the diaspora aren't aware of this is due to, to, it, uh, to, to a, a lack of knowledge of our history and our disorganization. Uh, but, uh, you know, but I, I, but I, was, I, I was very moved, uh, you know, by the fact. And also... Uh, you know, she, she 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 laid out. She pointed out that everybody in the world wants a piece of Africa, except, ironically, uh, Africans. Uh, you know, on the continent, because they're being brainwashed and miseducated. And uh, you know, but every but everybody else in the world, uh, uh, you know, is uh, is trying to get a piece of Africa, and it's like that, uh, and it's similar to that 19th century scramble for Africa again, except that they haven't uh, they haven't uh, yet recreated a Berlin Conference to uh, 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 you know to recarve Africa. But they have the U.S. Uh, Africom, the U.S. Uh, military Africa Command. They are trying to dominate uh, the resources of Africa. Thank you, brother Ephes. Brother Moses, have you had the chance to see the video? If so, what did you take from it? Yes, I saw the video. Um, she had a pretty good analysis. Um. Um, Africa is rich in resources. Um, it's a political problem in terms of um, the class strata and uh, how resources are divided among the people. Um, ultimately, it's a human relations problem. And ultimately, uh, in terms of how we are organized as a people, and so we have to become sensitive to each other's needs and. Uh, and uh, respond accordingly as Marxist-Leninists. And um, 
Africa has resources. Um, we need to take control of, of the resources that, as Africa for Africans need to take control of their resources and and um, and and uh, use it for the interests of the people. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Sister Eleanor, your response. Well, I concur with Brother uh, Moses, who quoted um, uh, William Du Bois, W.D. Du Bois, in Africa for Africans. And in this film, one thing in this video that was very clear is that Africa is not poor, nor are Africans. They are simply impoverished by being exploited as workers by the imperialists, their land and resources being exploited, and their them as individuals being exploited as workers. And therefore, the, the workers, the people are impoverished, but the land is not. And uh, W.D. Du Bois, who really influenced uh, Nguema, um said Africa... Uh, together with uh, uh, his movement for the return uh, to the ancestral continent, you know, and and he influenced uh, Marcus Garvey's philosophy as well, um, all contributing to the intensifying of of uh, of, of the vanguard in Africa uh, for uplifting. Uh, uh, and dignifying life of the of our brothers and sisters, uh, and I want to say, uh, Brother Africa, when I talked about Harriet Tubman, you are so correct. She did not read or write English, and that's very important. I think you're right to say because this woman was a, a genius. Obviously, she moved one thousand people without one ever being caught. Uh, to freedom and that's a profound thing and it was not by accident that we did not speak the colonial language of the imperialists the British Empire the uh, imperialists as one uh, uh, liberation fighter described the British as the uh, greatest uh, oppressors of, uh, on five continents So uh, I just wanted to clarify That you are correct We have to be careful yeah. And so how we sister, discuss our history Yeah you know Sister Eleanor um, Just to reinforce that point You know When you talk about George Washington Carver How the heck One individual took a little damn peanut And created over 200 Different inventions from a peanut can you conceive of that? Yep, including fabric and other things. And when you think of the real McCoy, the concept of the real McCoy, those McCoys were Africans. When we get on the British, uh, uh, British quote, riding saddle, saddle, an invention of slaves in the America, the stoplights, the way that the railroad tracks are able to move so that one train can move from one track to another, an invention of African people. Our contributions to the Americas is profound. 
even the the bad drink Coca-Cola, though we do not hold the patent, was an invention of African-Americans. So, you know, there's so much that was done and invented by African-Americans. And uh, as Marcus, as Malcolm X said, the problem wasn't getting a job or working, it was getting paid. And as you stated so eloquently, the issue isn't uh, literacy, it's literacy in the colonial language. And it is true. Uh, recently in Savannah, uh, I saw a church, an AME church that was built, and they were looking at the pews of the church. And they found out that the pews in the church, uh, the markings that they thought were markings were actual writings. And um, someone, uh, apparently some of the builders of the church were Muslim and they were um, uh, trying to write uh, how you make the prayer costs a lot, I think it's called, uh, one of their prayers they make uh, five times a day or something. So we've been contributing to the Americas and our history has been unknown and unseen and to the industrialization of America, through the arts, through architecture, through through medicine, so many things. Look at uh, Charles Drew, a man who bled to death, but uh, was the inventor of what we now call blood banks and the process of transfusion. So, I mean, we've contributed so much, but we've received so little recognition and we our liberation struggle has helped advance the liberation of others and when you talk about uh, our enemies we see during the civil rights movement uh, of the 60s um, very few uh, of the legislation legislature that passed ever mentioned us directly ergo we did not reap the rewards of the of, of our labor Instead, other people from often other places were able to qualify as quote minorities. So we see uh, we, we we see that uh, there are only I think two places where we were mentioned by race, and that is as voters and uh, and um, it was a labor, uh, labor, what do they call it? Affirmative action. Those were the only two places we were listed as, as, as African-Americans. Otherwise, we were, quote, minorities. And that was a very, came to be a nebulous term in that it could mean anybody from anywhere and did not focus the, uh, get us receiving the uh, benefits of our labor and our movement uh, from the 1950s to the 1960s. And we've seen this happen time and time again. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Brother Haki, I can read you some of the um, narratives that came from her presentation that were contradict the narratives that come out of Europe and Western, Western Europe and America, the way they see Africa. Western Europe and America always describe Africa in terms of using words poverty, poor, death, etc. But 
let me just share some of these things with you, Brother Haki, and you can extrapolate uh, from it what you think. She's talking about the region that known it as Sarleon. She said, below the Sahara Desert, Sarleon was one of the first areas to have universities. She talked about how the Queen Victoria Diamond and Crown came from that area. She said Sarleon is the third largest country that has the largest reserve of iron ore. It's the third largest iron ore uh, resource that comes out of that region. She talked about how in the hell a country is going to be poor when Europeans still come to that country. And when they leave it, they leave out with millions of dollars, they leave out with a lot of wealth. They leave out with wealth, and yet they still tell the country is poor. Just your response in Germany, Brother Hackey, to those facts. You know, you know Brother Africa, one of the things, um, and you stated it earlier, one of the things we had to understand that the narrative that was concocted, you know, by the West in terms of, you know, how Africa is defined, does so because of political considerations. So one of the things that Western leaders have to understand is that in order to demonize uh, African people for the purpose of keep the oppression going, or certainly to, to justify uh, neocolonialism, uh, you have to depict the people as somehow less than adequate or somehow lacking in terms of intelligence, lacking in terms of stature, lacking in terms of desire. So clearly, you know, we have to understand this this, 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 this is feature in terms of neocolonialism. And when we look at America, in terms of the material of African people in America, it's the same, it's pretty much the same kind of formula. So we have to come to the realization, you know, that disguising our history serves a political interest. Serves a political interest, and so it's, so it's come upon us as African people to to understand the history. And so nobody can free our minds but ourselves, as Bob Marley would say. So we have to understand first and foremost in terms of, you know, not only in terms of being the mothers and fathers of civilization, but also we have to understand in terms of the the very noble contributions to humanity, not just you know in America but throughout the world. But we can't understand any of this unless we study. We have to read in order to come to realization. Because if we don't internalize and begin to understand our contributions to the world, we will be deceived into believing that everything will be the value is always created by the West. In fact, as Sister Eleanor alluded to, when you talk about all the scientific creations in America, they're asking people. Amazing. But then unless you read the history, nobody's going to tell you that. They're not going to do that. So as a consequence, young African brothers and sisters grow up thinking that, in fact, they, they contribute nothing to society, that their abilities intellectually are constrained in terms of their color. Uh, if we don't do something to make sure our children understand the reality in terms of the, the, the historical duplicity in terms of Western states, you know, lying about African history, unless you come to the realization that we have an obligation to make sure, our, make damn sure that if you do nothing else, make sure your children understand the history. If you do nothing else, make sure they understand the history. So if they grow up and do something that's maybe that's um, maybe if they grow up and do run the thug life, they do they participate in the thug life, but they have they have some knowledge with that thug life. Uh, one of these, um, I think there's a, a series of books people got to read. You know, black thirteen black inventors, twenty five black inventors, um, African inventors. All of that stuff should be common knowledge in terms of an African household, in terms of imparting that information to the children. No African child should go around thinking that, in fact, skin color defines your intelligence. So that's on us. So, so, so when the sister talks about the fact that, uh, you know, that um, uh, Africa is indeed very, very wealthy in terms of she, 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 she indicates that, you know, these people you know, of the West come to Africa and leave with millions of dollars, 
Uh, she's saying that, in fact, that the wealth existed. And I'm also reminded of this young brother out of uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. The young brothers say they understand, they're talking about the West, they understand that once we are free, ain't nothing going to stop us. Sky's the limit. So the brothers and sisters, they got uh, to adequately understand in terms of their capabilities. And one of the things about traveling through Africa and talking to the brothers and sisters and, uh, and, and, and just, you know, re, you know, look at, you know, uh, um, you know just um, viewing their brothers and sisters, the intelligence is just that, it's just raw intelligence. From the, I mean, from the most educated to the least educated, the raw intelligence is there. And that is not anecdotal. I mean, it, well, it is anecdotal in the sense that it's what you observe. And, but when you're talking to people in terms of assessing, you know, you know, the, the, it's just a, the general demeanor in terms of the importance of intelligence, Africa sort of epitomizes the importance in terms of intelligence. In fact, Africa is one of the only places I've ever been to where, where a person speaks 14 languages and the people expect them to speak everyone perfectly. <laughs> and so Africa is the only place I've ever been. I've been to Europe, you know, uh, you know and I, I've, you know, I've never been to – I know a couple of situations where, you know, people speak 14 languages, 7, 8, 9, 10, 14 languages, and they speak them all perfectly. You know, so the, the brilliance in terms of Africa is, is there for all to see, so that's not an issue. And the question in terms of poverty, of course, the West serves – it serves the West interest to promote Africa as impoverished, poor, or, or deaf and destruction. It serves that interest. And so we understand the realities in terms, and we look at the terms of the resources that exist on the continent. Uh, we understand that the system in place that, that, that ensures that, the, that those resources are enjoyed to the benefit uh, of the West at the exclusion of African people. And we do understand the role of class in terms of African leaders who are propped up you know, about all kinds of formations that to make sure, you know, that the most the most uh, ill-equipped African leaders come to a position of power to continue the exploitation of the continent and the exploitation of their people. So we fundamentally understand that. But the question in terms of Africa being poor, she's absolutely correct. Africa is not poor. Africa is extremely rich, not only in terms of resources, but also just in terms of its people, I mean, in terms of the diversity of people, the cultures, the languages, in terms of how they do things, their philosophical outlook. It's such a beautiful, beautiful place. And so, therefore, you know, I understand why the West would demonize Africa, because once Africa comes to the realization that, you know, if, it's, if it consolidates, if it becomes one united Africa, there's no country in this, in this world that be able to exploit, and, to exploit and repress or oppress African states. And I'll close with that. And before we move on, Sister Aldo and Brother Moses, I would like to get y'all to speak to the point that she made in terms of describing Sierra Leone and people, she said the people had they have a beautiful soul, and they were so beautiful. Now, a lot of times when we talk about a people in the country, we very seldom talk about the beauty of the people. When you talk about Europeans in that perspective, but she talked, she was very um, moving when she talked about how beautiful and, and the soul of the people, where they just exhibit good will, a good feeling. Can y'all speak a little bit? to that particular point, Sister Eleanor. Well, first, Brother Africa, I'd like to go back to the wealth and what you mentioned about um, the queen, the diamond that's in the queen's um, 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 uh, crown. She talked about a woman that was simply gardening in her yard and, and, and around her home, not even on her farm, and um, uncovered the diamond. Now, obviously, she wasn't paid 
the uh, a reasonable price for this diamond, but she was simply gardening and 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 pulled this um, diamond from her garden. If you remember that in the in the video, you make me think of that. That was a, a profound thing, and that speaks to the people and their generosity, and their and their faith in humanity. Uh, which is uh, a beautiful thing. That that in itself is a, a, a beautiful thing to have that kind of spirit, the spirit of sharing and love, the the spirit of caring and nurturing others, and um, having faith that that will be recipro- reciprocated in in a similar fashion. So uh, that was a, a wonderful thing, and. Uh, you mentioned that 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 stone and the fact that she mentioned it and she went further to discuss how it was found in someone's garden. Thank Brother you. Thank you, Sister Brother Moses, would you like to respond? Yeah. Yeah, I'm off track. Okay, no problem. Brother Haki, as we talk about the beauty of African people, their spirit and their soul, I know you spend many times um, going to African countries and visiting their people. Speak to that, that that aspect of how the beauty of the people and the soulfulness of the people, how they have a tendency to have a love for humanity, regardless of what kind of um, situation that they may, they may be in, and not be real, very favorable to the best living conditions. Yeah, the, yeah, that, that that spiritual quality seems to be innate in all Africans, irrespective of tribe. And I never understood one tribe that was that didn't didn't exhibit that spiritual quality. And you know, I was uh, particularly moved by the Maasai out of East Africa, and in terms of you know uh, their love of all things and their ability in terms of communicate, even when they're angry, they don't yell and scream. I mean, it's very low key. I mean, very, very spiritual in terms of delivery. If they disagree with something, you can't even tell if they're arguing. And you got to say, "Wow, this is this is this is unique." And also, in terms of the in terms of, I, I find somewhat, I find it very extraordinary, is that uh, you know, um, when we talk about the love of life, you could have animals that will come close to African people, and African people would never stone them, kick them, or do anything to them. They let them exist. They don't even they wouldn't do that. I can't imagine in American society, uh, uh, let's say a um, a uh, pelican or a swan or a duck come close to most Americans and they wouldn't kick them. They 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 just don't do that. In terms of the propensity, the the, the propensity to to um, you know like when there's a disagreement, fighting is almost a last result. It takes a lot to get Africans to fight. I, I find that very, very extraordinary. Whereas growing up in the West, I tell you, you drop it to fight up, drop up a hat, and so you realize that the spiritual dimension, the spiritual quality that uh, you know uh, that uh, exists in Africa, is sadly lacking in the context of a Western context, and so therefore, you know, the, the beauty of African people, and, and it doesn't matter your class standing, whether whether they're poor, whether they're middle income, or whether they're extremely wealthy, uh, this 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 propensity in terms of this respect for life. Uh, this love of all things, I, I thought it was, it was very, very interesting. So, in, in a sense, ironic because when you stop and think about it in terms of the the class exploitation, 
when you think about the fact that, you know, the very wealthy Africans sell these raw materials, you know, to the West at the expense of the African people, then you say that's a real disconnect in terms of your spiritual understanding of the world and your ability to play ball with the West, even though it creates poverty among your people. It is an irony, and it's where one I've been, I've been grappling with in terms of trying to understand, because when, when the next thing I'm going to do when I get back to the continent, I'm going to raise that question in terms of that propensity just to get some insight from your brothers and sisters in terms of, you know, how could such a thing exist when, when in fact, you know, this, 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 what seems to be innate in terms of spirituality, why is not, uh, why is not, uh, no, why it doesn't showcase itself when it comes to corruption on the African continent. So it's a very interesting paradox for me to, uh, to, to, to look into. But in any event, brother, I, I think that in terms of the spiritual thing, I think it's just, you talk, we talk about ancient people. I mean, you're talking about the beginning of life. You're talking about, you know, the mothers and fathers, you know, of civilization. And so along the way, hundreds of thousands of years of evolution. So, you know, along the way, you know, uh, spiritual, spiritual development, of understanding that there's something more to life than what you merely see is very strong in African people. Uh, and, and, and one of the things I'm going to, I'm going to share with you this, and I'm going to conclude. Uh, I, was, I, was, I was with a friend, uh, and uh, um, whenever in, in, in Africa, I stayed with his family, right? So we went to visit a friend of his. And um, it was interesting because I was in a friend's house, and, and I just I had this feeling, this deja vu. I'm saying, damn, I, I've been here before. I know this place. I've been here before. I know if I go upstairs. On my right, there's a bedroom. On the other bedroom, there's a, on my left, there's a the restroom. I know this. I know downstairs there's a restroom. I knew all of that. And it was strange. And I'm like, you know, that never happened to me for that kind of deja vu. When I was in Uganda, there was another situation in which, I tell you, we were at uh, a, spiritual, a spiritual event. It was a lot of people out there. And they were talking. And, and, and I was looking around, you know, talking because I was excited to be there. And uh, everybody else was focusing on the speaker, you know, in terms of what the speaker had to say. And something whizzed past my ear, and I'm like, what the hell is going on here? And I look around, there's nobody room behind me. <laughs> you know, so I'm like, what the hell? You know, so it was very strange. It was an open field. So it was like, what the hell was that? It was very, very strange. I, I can't explain it, except this, the spiritual dimension, the spiritual quality in terms of existing in Africa seems to manifest itself in terms of the way African people see the world and the way they behave. I think to a large extent, the spiritual understanding of the world is part of the reason why you know, the West is able to do what it does because I think African people are focusing much higher. And I think in terms of political context, we can't, we, we can't necessarily uh, exclude the physical from the spiritual and understand that these people come over to Africa, they come not with the best intentions, and if we don't do something to keep that in check, then they're going to prevail in terms of doing very bad things to the continent and to the people who inhabit the continent of Africa. So I think to some extent, just this, this, this propensity in terms of the spiritual propensity sort of gets in the way because you see these people as being unimportant. You don't see them as, as you don't see them as is a necessary part of the equation, and so therefore you don't take them seriously. So I think maybe the spirituality may have a part to do with that in terms of, you know, why the West can continue to do what it does, and Africans, you know, uh, 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 and by and large find themselves, you know, um, um, hurt seriously hurt you know, by, by these strategies employed by the West. But I think to some extent there's the spiritual there's a more there's more balance in terms of the, the spiritual understanding of the world and the physical understanding of the world. I think the that, that the deficit is closing. I think increasingly Africans are beginning to incorporate more of the physical and the spiritual as opposed to just all the spiritual and then the physical. So now they begin to, begin to bridge that gap 
So I think what's going to happen, they have a, a much more a grander understanding in terms of Western motivations to be in a position to prevent Western motivation or Western, or Western institutions from the exploitation and underdevelopment of Africa. So, but anyway, when next time I get there, I'm going to definitely discuss some in terms of some of my concerns, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. And for our listening audience, for those who have not seen that particular video, we actually you can go to YouTube and you can um, type in Malice, M-E-L-L-E-N-C-E, Watt, B-A-R-T, Heitha Williams. And uh, you can um, look her up and check out the video where she spoke on the platform of TED, T-E-B-X, Berlin Salon. And it's a beautiful video, but she got a host of videos on um, YouTube and when you talk about Africa is fighting the back, is fighting back. She's a good example. Let's go to another example of how Africa is fighting back. You'd like to turn your attention to a document just recently came out uh, from P.A. Roots, Pan African Roots, the director Brother Bob Brown. He wrote an appeal to the Catholic Church, to the Pope Francis, and the Catholic Church worldwide. And he talked about the importance of the church restraining all of their papa um, laws and to digitize all the slavery, you know, um, records. And, Brother Anthony, I'm going to have you to start off this discussion in terms of when you read that letter in that document, um, what did you make of that strategy of creating a scenario of calling out the contradiction and the lies and the, the real truth in terms of this whole question of slavery, the slave trade, there were crimes against humanity. And these records should be not only um, digitized, but more importantly, the laws that were written by the Pope, he need to rescind them because they were incorrect. Just your general response to that letter, Brother Anthony. Her response is that it, it, it is very revealing for one. And that, and it shows how uh, the papal bulls, which the uh, which uh, divided uh, the world between Spain and Portugal, uh, gave justification for something that was illegal, uh, even by, by, by Christian standards. And as uh, uh, you know, and as Bob correctly points out, God uh, did not make slaves in the womb, and that has serious uh, implications. That means that all the uh, uh, that that all the uh, the policies that justified the enslavement and uprooting of Africans were. Uh, were uh, illegal, even by uh, by uh, you know uh, European standards. So it was uh, it was a case of uh, you know hypocrisy on their part that they that 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 that, that they used uh, 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 the 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 Bible to to to, to justify child slavery. And uh, and um, and uh, you know, and I think uh, 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 Bob Brown correctly points out that uh, that 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 uh, the, the the church could offer scholarships 
uh, to students that would digitize their records of uh, the uh, you know their records. Uh, you know that could be a, a, a you know a fellowship or scholarship, and uh, they could uh, you know and uh, you know there that there, there are, are a lot of Africans enrolled in these various uh, Catholic uh, colleges and universities. Uh, you know, that would create educational opportunities for them, uh, you know, to digitize their slavery era records and reveal them and to admit that uh, that, uh, that, that the grounds on which a lot of these uh, capitalist countries stand on are 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 very shaky and and uh, and uh, illegal. Including all the settler colonies that exist throughout the world, uh, such as the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, uh, uh, you know, uh, occupied uh, Palestine, etc. And um, you know, so I think uh, you, you know, I think uh, I think this is a very important document, and uh, is the result of years of research. And uh, you know, and uh, you know, and I think, uh, and I think it, uh, you know, even though, uh, even though if the church respond uh, favorable, favorably, it would, uh, it would raise a lot of controversy among uh, these various capitalist countries. But I think it, uh, but I think it, I, I think it's a, a start and another, um, and another. Uh, you know, uh, you know, arrow in the in the battle against uh, capitalism. Thank, thank you, brother Anthony, brother Hackey. Your response to the letter, an open letter, letter number two to the Pope Francis and the Catholic Church worldwide from PA Roots. Your response, brother Hackey. Yeah, just yeah, just to to. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to um, reiterate what Brother Anthony just articulated, but it's, it's interesting. The role of the Catholic Church is not particularly predisposed in terms of righting wrongs. Uh, you know, um, you know, one of the things when you talk about just in terms of bureaucratic structure, you talk about an institution that has its own police department, its own military, its own intelligence department, its own government. Uh, you know, it's totally autonomous. When you think about a religious group with that kind of power, then one has to ask, you know, can that power be used to do bad things? I think one of the things when we talk about the the, the, the enrichment, uh, you know, uh, uh, or, or the potential to to make huge sums of money, you know, use use a lot utilizing uh, religion. I think one of the things that you can't uh, you can't underestimate that motivation in terms of the, in terms of the Catholic Church. In terms of his, you know, his desire in terms of capitalizing on making tons and tons of money, it doesn't necessarily mean that Pope, uh, Pope John, uh, I think his name, Pope John II, I believe his name is. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, mean that uh, he he as an individual, you know, don't have some 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 some, some legitimate uh, concerns in terms of the problems that are confronting humanity. What I'm saying is that in the context of working in the institution. Uh, in terms of actually working on those things you personally fear are uh, justified, sometimes run into a bureaucratic um, uh, malaise would make it almost impossible 
in terms of you actually, uh, you know, um, realizing that those things that you think are, are, are appropriate or beneficial to humanity at large. So in that context, he's he's, he's caught in he's caught in, in bureaucratic institutions, and so therefore, regardless of the fact that he may be a good person, the bottom line is that he has the institutional mandates to carry out. And so in that context, I think you know you know when we when we talk about in terms of the Catholic Church, in terms of the kind of uh, uh, the kind of uh, policies that are not necessarily good in terms of in terms of advancing of humanity. I think to get the Catholic Church to to question those kinds of things, I think it's going to it's going to be a bit of a stretch. Uh, you know, I think as I alluded to earlier, when we talk about in terms of this, this institution being autonomous, I think one of the things that in being autonomous, no one is going to tell you what to do or how to do it. And certainly, if there's a lot of money to be made in terms of the way you, you historically done things, then change is less likely to occur. So in that context, you know, and then one other final thing, I think, you know, historically when you look in terms of the evolution of the Catholic Church, and when you saw the the focus being you know, the focus not so much on the Creator, the focus become the the the, uh, the, the focus become the uh, the importance of human beings. I think to some extent that in fact created a, a, a precedent uh, to make it possible to do some very very bad things. I, I think when you talk historically in terms of the Catholic Church and struggles. You know, uh, with uh, with the wealthy, uh, you know, in, in Western society, uh, I think that when you talk about those kind of struggles, I think this propensity in terms of control uh, manifests itself loud and clear. So I think this, the issue in terms of Catholic control, I think sometimes gets in the way in terms of being able to do those kind of things that are genuinely in the interest of humanity. And uh, so. In any event, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I enjoy the letter that Brother Bob sent to them, you know, but the reality is that I don't anticipate, you know, the 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 John Paul taking that uh, uh, taking that uh, that letter seriously. I seriously doubt it even get to him. Probably people who read it probably going to probably throw it in the garbage can and probably not even going to read it uh, because in, all, in other words, what Brother Bob is asking him asking the Pope to do is to acknowledge the historical wrongs of the Catholic Church and not only to to acknowledge the historical wrongs. But create a, a, a precedent in which those historical wrongs can be not only addressed but systematically changed. I think that's asking a whole lot. But even Brother Africa, I close with that. All right, thank you, Brother Moses. Your thoughts on the letter to Pope Francis from PA Roots? Yeah, um, I think you know, like um, the Catholic Church has done a lot of damage. In terms of politics and the world, um, it's been around forever. Um, it's, it's, it perpetuates itself, um, and so you know it's, it's, it has a tendency to be conservative and uh, to perpetuate the status quo. And uh, it's not, it, you know, revolution is it's not what it's all about, and so. You know, nevertheless, you know, it, it's rendered unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and uh, unto the God the things that are God. And I, I tend to put the Catholic Church on the side of God, and uh, and uh, and even though there's contradictions, uh, um, and um, that a thousand schools of thought contend, uh, basically, it's my position, and and that you know. We we um, 
we have to stand on the truth and put our own independent uh, uh, position out. Marxism is a Mao Zedong thought. It's my position, and and uh, and we have to explain things um, concretely and patiently, and um, hope that we can win the hearts and minds of the people. Now, uh, the Catholic Church is 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 one one huge huge uh, problem. It can be it can be when the Pope takes these positions. Uh, you know, uh, I'm pro-choice. Uh, like I said, I'm for freedom of religion, though. So I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother Moses and Sister Alan. Your response to this open letter. Pope Francis. Well, I'm glad to see that uh, it was published by the Catholic Church, so the letter wasn't completely ignored. And uh, he brought up in that letter St. Augustine, and St. Augustine was a black pope um, from Libya. And, of course, um, it makes me think of the oblates. Right now, there is a problem in in the church in that, as Robert said, the church uh, is how we all happen to know from the Coptics to the Catholic Church is how we all happen to know Christianity. And we know the Catholic Church had huge fights centuries ago and divided into the Greek Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox. They're essentially all Catholics praying the same prayers. And Pope Francis is from Argentina, the current Pope, and, you know, is questionable in that they're suing in Chicago, but it's the wrongs that the Portuguese and the Spaniards did under the uh, uh, skies of exploiting the New World and, and what they did to indigenous people as well as slaves. And I see the digitizing those records would be helpful for people understanding their origin, the people of Salvador, El Salvador, of uh, uh, look at the name of the country, the Savior. You see the influence of the Catholic Church for the people in Nicaragua, Guatemala, Mexico, throughout the uh, Central and South America where uh, so many people are Catholics. And uh, Pope Francis is an extraordinary pope in that he refuses to wear Prada. Everybody in the Vatican, the little slippers they wear are Prada. He won't wear them. His family even offered to give him a Mercedes. He won't take it, nor will he take it from the archdiocese. So if there's anyone that... Mm excuse me, Bob Brown could have dialogue with, it would certainly be Pope Francis and the the Church of Chicago uh, uh, and where the suit was filed. Um, It's interesting how you could file a suit in the United States, uh, Anglophone country, affecting the slave trade in in, um, Latin countries, but the slave trade, and this is how we need to unite the slave trade. So I would say that uh, 
I hope that Bob Brown's letter will have one side effect, and that is to bring forward the struggle of black Catholics in the United States to have these five persons canonized as saints. Not one descendant of slaves in this country have ever been canonized as saints. A saint. It's only recently that we were able to have uh, be led by a black man in the Washington Archdiocese. It's not a problem in, in having Africans go forward in the Catholic Church. There seems to be a political problem in having African Americans, the descendants of slaves, to be recognized for their godly and saintly work. The Oblates and the Josephites were orders of nuns who dedicated their lives to educating indigenous and uh, enslaved and formerly enslaved children and they've yet to be recognized by the church. So this is uh, just a part of what would be, uh, would come forward, the digitalization of the the church's records. Now, the thing is, is that, uh, as Robert said, and Haki said, the church is so vast and large, you would have to go from archdiocese to archdiocese to see these things happen. I think Chicago, a city founded uh, by black people, by two black uh, explorers, is a perfect place to start. But I also think the Maryland-Virginia region is a second place. You know, Maryland being named for the Virgin Mary, as is Virginia named for a virgin also. So the Catholic Church has had a profound uh, impact on the settle- settlement of the Americas. And uh, uh, it seems that, uh, and clearly, no slaves were made in the womb. The way the popes were duped into um, playing a part in this role is that they were told that the Africans as well as the indigenous people were cannibals and eating themselves, eating each other. Now, this is a a profound sin against humanity, and this is the way the Pope uh, five, six hundred years ago was operating. So, you know, it's it's an interesting issue, and we need to expose the history of colonialization, and the Catholic Church holds a lot of records, I would imagine, on enslavement and the uh, uh, transport of indigenous as well as slaves throughout the Americas. And uh, it'll be interesting what happens, but I do think it was interesting that it was actually published in uh, a Catholic a paper that is viewed in, I believe, in numerous languages around the world, not only around the country. And this was, I think, a a profound thing that Bob Brown did, and the research and the endorsers are really something. You see these incredible endorsers from who uh, supported Bob's research as well as the draft of the, the letter itself. And it appears that what he's only thing he's requesting is the full 
he wants the Pope to use his full authority and power to formally and publicly uh, commit once and for all the 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 fact that uh, God makes no slaves and and there are no slaves in the womb, which I think is a foregone conclusion. But the real thing that he's requesting is uh, the digitization, digitizing the uh, records that are being held in the United States, and he feels that. Uh, the 561 affidavits and, uh, and uh, righted slave era reports, and he wants to. I would like to see those digitized and uh, be able <coughs> to see the public have access to those documents. And he's giving the Pope until Wednesday, the Wednesday before Easter, April 4th, 2023. He's asking that he respond by then, and I'd I'd like to see if there is any response at all from the Catholic Church. Because one thing Catholics do believe in, with with all the contradictions, is God. And whenever you see every every day, one billion people on planet Earth are reciting the same prayers, and every prayer in the Catholic Mass is directly from the Bible. Tell you we're reading from this book, this verse, and recite the prayer. And there are three prayers recited daily. They vary. They go through an annual cycle. And and they're God-fearing people with numerous contradictions, especially for African people who struggle to uh, support their faith while they deal through this, live with this racist history. I attend a church where the pews in the front of the church were made for blacks, and they were made to be, made by blacks for blacks and made to be small and uncomfortable. They used to sit in the back of the church, but now they sit in the front of the church. But this church that I attend, it's a 155-year-old Catholic church founded by slaves, and the slaves intended to found a school and a church, but they couldn't let Abraham Lincoln know it. And on the weekend, Abraham Lincoln would allow these slaves to sell their wares on the White House lawn, just just blocks away from the slave market. And these slaves would sell their wares and eventually raised the money to purchase the land to build St. Augustine Catholic Church in the District of Columbia. It's been forced to move several times because of the fact that it is a black Catholic church. Uh, One of its most famous sites is the site of the Washington Post. There's a mere plaque on the Washington Post building that it was the site of the St. Augustine Catholic Church, which is now located at 15th and V Street Northwest uh, in Washington, D.C. And uh, One minute, Sister Alabama, uh, you got to wrap it up. One minute. Yeah, well, you, you, you got me when you hit the Catholic Church because I am a Catholic. And it is a uh, incredible contradiction. 
and it is a struggle, but I think the digitizing the records would be helpful um, for uh, the sake of humanity and writing history and us having a clearer understanding of the people that were bought and sold and the what happened to the indigenous people at the Indian schools and so much that has happened that we know that happened in the United States, Canada, and throughout the Americas. So we'll wait and see what happens on April 4th. But it was a noble cause, and I appreciate Bob Brown's effort and the support that he is giving to, inadvertently giving to black Catholics across the United States. And I can only say to him, thank you, and to all the endorsers of that letter. All right, Sister Azor, thank you, Brother Anthony. I'll let you go back to you, let you take make your last comment. But well, my understanding of the document, one of the major things they want them to receive the um, paper board laws. And Sister Eleanor, for the names on the letters, those was people that he addressed the letter to. It doesn't represent a necessary endorsement of the letter, but they are people who is part of this institution to try to make them correct, correct the wrongs. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts? I understand that the APIPGC has it listed on their website. How can the people go to the website um, and view the document as well as to see if they want to support Brother Bob Brown? How they how can they do that, Brother Anthony? They they can do that, that by visiting our website at www.a-aprp-gc.org. And they and uh, there's some other literature uh, 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 available there as well, and they are, they can also find out about uh, about the history of Pan Africanism and the history and uh, political line of the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC. Thank you, Brother Anthony. You listen to Africa on the Move, as you can see. Africa is fighting. We have given you several examples of our existence tonight. This is part three, and when we come back, we'll come back with our final thoughts. This is Africa on the Move. We have some problems. Just bear with us, and the music will be coming right about now. We thank you. Welcome to Pilgrim And to the buffalo Who once ruled a plain Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline And a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow 
tonight and more definitely in terms of the letter to Pope Francis if you check out also become an acting member spread the letter share with your friends and your network now again without information people cannot think and we encourage you to join the organization because without information you cannot think and without organization you can think clearly so do both of those things at the same time again we would like to have your support if you'd like to support the radio station you can make your general contribution by either through Zelle, and you type in African Awareness Association 2 at gmail.com, or you can do it through Cash App. And that would be a dollar sign, a capital L, small e, small e, small c, small r, small o, small b. You know, with that economic dependency, you cannot have no freedom. You know, we're going to fight until our people are free and continue to fight to stay free. This is Africa on the Move. It's under the direction banner of the African Awareness Association. You can hear this radio station every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Please spread the word and tell your friend the place to be on Sunday evening is here on Africa on the Move. We will continue to travel down the road of liberation, and we ask you to come and join us. So on that note, let's close out this program. As we go back to our panelists and analysts and ask them for their final thoughts, for today's program, and we will start out with Brother Moses. Brother Moses, we'll find the thoughts for tonight. It's been a great show. Uh, I'm glad I was in the number. Uh, certainly, we have to recognize that we're not just uh, natural people in a spiritual world, but we're spiritual people in a natural world, and we have to take care of that spirit. We have to organize that spirit. And uh, that's why prayer is so important uh, for those who are a household of faith. And so I I think, you know, like uh, we have to keep politics in command and, and, uh, and put truth out wherever, wherever the lies are being told. We have to stand for truth. And we have to patiently fight this battle, uh, knowing that that um, it's a long-term battle. It's, it's it's protracted, and that there are a lot of petty contradictions that we should not spend all our time struggling with. Uh, 
but get to the principal contradictions and heighten the contradictions and confront. This is a struggle. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, your final thoughts for tonight. Well, um, I want to thank you for a wonderful show. And um, I should have known that uh, Lightfoot and these others weren't actually um, endorsing Brown's letter. That was a misreading. I need to have these things in hard copy to read them. But in closing, I'd like to say one wonderful thing. Numerous priests and nuns have given their life for revolutionary causes for the people to liberate themselves from colonialism, imperialism, and oppression. And for the parishioners of St. Augustine, all of my life, and as a member there, they stood up against apartheid. From the beginning, when the women and children had a walkout, St. Augustine stood up. They stood up for the Palestinians. And we learned all of our black history that's so important. The rape of Sally Henson and having five children for Thomas Jefferson. Phoebe having seven children for George Mason. And we learned so much of our history standing on the shores of the Americas. And when I look up and down 15th Street, I see the impact of gentrification because every May 1st, St. Augustine celebrates International Workers' Day with every child that attends the school and every parishioner. And they celebrate the Virgin Mary and they would walk up 15th Street carrying her with numerous flowers and offerings in solidarity with internationally when no church, no other church that I knew of, but maybe the AME and the Catholic Church stood in solidarity with the Palestinians and the South Africans. And I say that there are many contradictions in life, and when we begin to pick at an ancient institution, it can be delicate. But as far as the digitizing, records. It would be a great service to humanity and give enlightenment. And the church has so much to learn about itself because the church was not celebrating May Day, International Workers' Day with the parishioners of St. Augustine. The Oblate and the Josephite nuns are now in their 80s and 90s. In order to have women that were dedicated to teaching children We bought women from Nigeria. We educated them. We gave the last house we owned on 15th Street to the nuns so they would always have housing and not be without homes. Sister Gloria, the principal of our school, now is a Ph.D. And uh, we stand in solidarity with our African brothers and sisters, with the Palestinian people, Palestinian people, and we stood from the 1950s, from 1949 forward, in opposition to apartheid in South Africa. And we knew it was, a, it emulated the apartheid of the United States of America. And with that, I'd like to say thank you so much for allowing me to participate in this evening's show. 
and I wish everyone would have a great week. And remember that women, black women in the Americas, African women, enslaved women suffered so much as laborers, as mothers, as women through great atrocities. But we still stand strong and stand firm and are moving forward. Thank you and good night. Thank you, Sister Alamu, and good night to you as well. Next we go to Brother Haki for your sound thoughts for tonight, Brother Haki. Yeah, yeah, Brother Africa. Uh, you know, recently, uh, over the last couple of weeks, there's been much discussion around, you know, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. I find this extraordinary for, for many reasons, but chief among those reasons is that one of the things we have to understand is that, you know, you know, prior to those interest rate increases, uh, there was so much money out here. But here's the problem. Despite huge sums of money floating throughout the system, the money never seems to find its way uh, to, you know, to those individuals or to those institutions that does, that does the country the most good. Uh, so, in other words, what was happening was that all that money that was created by the Federal Reserve uh, and in terms of credit, or this depart- Treasury Department, all that money was used by the wealth for the simple purpose in terms of not only just buying assets like houses, property, and so forth and so on, but also to put in offshore accounts. And so when we talk about $36 trillion in offshore accounts, we realize $36 trillion could do much to resurrect the, the, the environment. I mean, the, the, not, not the environment, but the, 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 the economic system. Uh, but the mere fact that there is no real desire among the wealthy in terms of revitalizing the economy, uh, the bottom line, interest rates really doesn't make a difference. So this notion that you're somehow going to blame interest rates in terms of the problems that are currently sweeping the economy, I think is not only farcical, but it's, it's, it's downright disingenuous. And the bottom line is that it really doesn't matter. Whether he increased interest rates or decreased interest rates, the bottom line is the people who have access to all the money are simply going to do what they want to do. In particular, they're going to do what it, what it takes to enrich themselves. They're, they're not concerned in terms of the economy. That's not their concern. And so it's very interesting. So this is sort of this, this question around interest rate increases sort of a red herring. Uh, so it, it, it gives justification and certainly gives cover. In terms of you know that the resolution to, to to capitalism is simply you know not not if, if you're going to raise the interest rates not raise them too much. Of course, that begs the question. I mean, so to, to what extent do you raise them? When we talk about a quotable point, you know, interest rate increase. I mean, you can't get much lower than that. But the mere but the mere fact that uh, they're saying that their the alternative in terms of interest increase increases lies with less interest rate increases. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just insane. But again, I say that because we have to understand that we live in the context of a capitalist system that doesn't give a damn about humanity. It doesn't give a damn about the about about the the economy. None of that stuff is important to them. And we have to come to realization that it's what's going on. Now, if that's in fact the case, then it seems to me that people on their own have to realize that in terms of you know resolving the situation, the resolution lies with people themselves in terms of doing what they got to do in their communities in terms of despite the kind of uh, insane policy, economic policy that's sweeping the land, to devise policies that's going to protect you to the extent you know, at least you have the necessities like food, shelter, and so forth and so on. So what's in people's power to do that, but it takes organization for people to get together to create that, create that, to create that kind of network and to make sure that those things are possible. 
uh, again, that calls for a higher level of, 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 of political uh, education, calls for a higher level of political understanding. But nonetheless, it has, to, it has to manifest because the bottom line is if you think that somehow that the system, regardless of interest rate increases, is going to do anything in terms of impacting uh, 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 the society in a positive kind of way, then you're sadly mistaken. It's simply not going to happen. So this is, this is the problem that we're confronted with in terms of capitalism. But as always, Brother Africa, I encourage people to, to, to unravel the matrix. Uh, one of the things earlier I talked about the fact that, you know, one thing we need, we need those institutions, uh, uh, in, in, we need those programs in the, you know, in, the, in, the, in the cities or in areas where large African populations reside to protect the emotional and intellectual uh, cap, in, uh, capabilities of, uh, of, the, of our children. Because one of the things is that if we're talking about a future, one of the things we can't have a future without an enlightened youth. And one thing is very, very clear, you know, uh, the system has no other recourse but to pump out the most absurd, the most uh, reactionary, the most regressive kind of entertainment for the sole purpose of conditioning children or young people to embrace a lot of ideas which are kind of, kind of was antithetical or counterproductive to the aspirations of, of a community. So if, to the extent that we don't do anything, we allow our kids to embrace those messages which are detrimental to their, to their, to their well-being or detrimental to their longevity you know, uh, here on this planet. So I encourage people to build those institutions that we need in terms of protecting our children and our close with that. Brother Africa, have a good night. Thank you, Brother Haki, and you the same. Good night. Brother Anthony, your final thoughts for tonight. Yes, Brother Africa. Uh, thank you for having me on the program tonight. And uh, my uh, my final thoughts are that we need to organize and educate each other as to the truth that's going on. That's the only way we're going to realize we're at war and uh, make the appropriate uh, preparations accordingly is if we control the education of the masses of our people. And we have to control the education, and we have to teach our true history. And uh, that is the only way in which we can uh, free ourselves. And we're going to have to rest ourselves, but we can only do that through permanent organization. One such organization is the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. You can find out more about us by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. Thank you for having me. Good night. We thank you for your contribution, Brother Anthony, and good night to you. We'd like to thank all of our supporters, friends, listening audience, those who have supported Africa on the Move, for allowing us to come to their homes this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We remind you that you can join us every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. Spread the word. If you have any views or comments, you can email us or contact us at Africa on the Moon, number two at gmail.com. Until next time, like always, we strive to go forward ever, backwards never, and we may not give you what you want, but we do the best we can to give you what you need. We know the information must be understood as a tool that must be used for liberation, and we know that when we come together as one, 
All things are possible. We guarantee you that Africa will be free, unified, and functioning under a scientific source of government. That you say, Pan-Africanism is the key. It will set all Africans free. So on that note, we see you next week, and we'll let you listen to, to, to some sounds of sweet liberation. We'll see you next week at 7 p.m., same time, same station. This is Brother Africa signing off on Africa on the Move. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by the news, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know. I must be strong to last through my journey, yeah, last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. must prepare and learn how to care, but we'll soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters, from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons 
came healing visionaries and Orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin, turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah.